stupid. He comes across in front of me every single time he overtakes. Where does he want me to go off the track? No! Stop talking to me in the braking zone! Dre's guy finally did it. He finally climbed the mountain from four titles to five titles. But unfortunately, we're not talking about Sebastian Vettel. This is Motorsport 101. <laughs> everybody and welcome to episode 74 of the Motorsport 101 podcast. Yeah. I'm your friendly neighbourhood host, hey, Mr. Andre Harrison. And with me as always, we have Mr. Ryan King. Hello, sir. Yep, yep. Just kind of coming off the high that that was Super Bowl 51. The team I wanted to win did not win, but it wasn't that bad. <laughs> We'll run that in a minute. Uh, but, uh, and joining me again, representing the other half of America, we have Mr. RJ O'Connell. Hello, sir. Howdy, y'all. I am uh, just enjoying a nice glass of sparkling water. Did uh, did anything happen on on Sunday when the day before we recorded this? Um, um, apparently, some guy won a race in Australia. Um, I I don't know what else happened. I mean, really. I mean, yeah, um, that that sounds that sounds about right. Certainly, no big football games. Uh, no, 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 not Co- college season's come and gone. Um, no, no, we'll, we'll get we'll, no. Like well, apparently, apparently, Lady Gaga did a concert, and apparently, it was quite good. We'll talk about that in a minute as I'm keeping it 101. But uh, let's let's get the uh, let's get the chores out of the way first. Social media, and you can find us. We are at motorsport101.net. You can find us on Twitter at motorsport underscore 101. Our personal Twitters at Harrison101HD, at Ryan Eric King with two Ks, and at RJ O'Connell and Johnson, who will be back soon. We promise he's busy trying to take over the world one video game at a time. Uh, he's at AJ underscore Bomber Sports. Um, we are on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash motorsport101. We are on YouTube at youtube.com forward slash motorsport101. Keep, keep an eye on there for the rest of the season reviews coming up slowly over the next couple of weeks. Once I dust off my old capture card, um, that'll be fun. Um, and if you really, really like us, you can back us on Patreon. We're at patreon.com forward slash Motorsport 101. Some cool perks on there if you want to support the show financially, and that would be fantastic. We just renewed the, the SoundCloud for another year, and that was purely funded by you people. So thank you, as always, for being awesome. Right, let's let let's cut to the chase here. We are all like at least semi-hardcore to hardcore football fans. The superb owl was on last night. Um, the Rowlett was very time. superb tonight. Yes, it, it, it was. It was indeed. And um, my not so beloved New England Patriots won the Super Bowl after being down at one point twenty-eight to three. And then the Patriots put up 31 unanswered points <laughs> to win. And I was coming off a ridiculously shitty, like, couple of nights at work. And I couldn't get to sleep. I wanted to go to bed early. I didn't go to bed early. I couldn't sleep. So I turned the TV on. I turned the TV on. I found out we were down, like, 21-3. And I'm thinking, oh, shit, here we go. This is going to be the cherry on top. I stuck with it. 
<laughs> and we won the Super Bowl. Hooray! Um, now, honestly, I'm not that excited about this whole thing, and I'm trying. I tried to keep it on a down note last night. I struggled. I got. I got to be honest with you, uh, because of the political implications, really. Of I mean, if I don't want to go too political on this show, but anyone that knows the Pats well knows they are quite frankly in bed with the orange cheeto formerly known as the president of the united states i I mean let's kind of be clear it's not the entire team okay it's the it's okay it's the team's three most prolific figures robert Kraft, the owner bill belichick the head coach and tom brady the team's franchise quarterback those are the three most prolific names obviously we it started earlier this year when belichick admitted he wrote trump a good luck letter and you know endorsed him and all that and then brady had the make america great again cap in the locker room and then tried to dodge all questions on the subject like a bitch um <laughs> and then obviously robert Kraft has been friends with trump for a long time hooray that's all great so you know i yeah. immediately go went into this feeling terrible as a, and kind of embarrassed as a, as a pats fan knowing that this like trump affiliation was there but um you know as 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 for the first lady of this show sarah connor's has pointed out like as King just mentioned there, it's it wasn't all on him. There's many great figures that have come out. It's like Martellus Bennett, I think, is a guy that's carried himself incredibly well throughout this period as uh, as a classic example. He's a great, great dude and uh props to him. But uh King, what a game of football that was. <laughs> yeah. It's like we're kinda used to Super Bowls being like strangely one sided affairs, but mm. it, it seemed like we were gonna get one of those traditional one sided affair Super Bowls and it it completely changed. It was it was certainly a game of two halves. It was like I said. Well, one point it was twenty eight to three, and then Kyle Shanahan, the offensive coordinator for the Falcons, took the curious strategy of we're not going to run the ball anymore. Um, even though they got Devontae Freeman and Tevin Coleman in the backfield, um, curious decision. Bold, I think. <laughs> Bold, I think is the word we're looking for here. Um, up 25, we're not going to try and kill the game off by running the clock down. No, we're going to keep throwing. Seems like a really good idea. And um, it, that let the Patriots back in. Um, again, like I said, like we mentioned, 31 unanswered points, including a massive two-point conversion at the end of regulation from James White, who should have been M- MVP, really. And I'm, yeah. I'm, I think I Even Tom Brady admitted that James White should have been the MVP of that game. Because, because they... For some reason, this year they had a fan vote for MVP. I don't know how much what? the fan vo- like. I don't know how much the fan vote took a part of the actual voting process. But they wait had a minute. A you mean to tell vote. me that Matt Verstappen didn't win Super Bowl MVP? This is bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> Robbery. Robbery. Yeah. And s- instead uh, of instead of the traditional having just the sports writers vote, this I'm like, hey fans, you, why don't you let your opinions also be heard? Yeah, I said it. James White should have been MVP. I mean, 20-plus touches, over 100 yards from scrimmage, and three touchdowns. It should have been James White, in my opinion. Brady was phenomenal in the fourth and in overtime, but I think that was the, I think that was James White's career game there. It's a bit like the old story of Doug Williams in that Super Bowl and Timmy Smith ran for 200 yards and nobody talks about it anymore. Uh, it's, it's that kind of example. But... Um, it's just an incredible game. That was the first Super Bowl to ever go into overtime in 51. We've had 51 of these, and this was the first time it's ever gone into overtime. Yeah. And New England marched down the field. They, they they won the toss. They got they got the ball. And 
marched down the field. There was a great big DPI on Martellus Bennett, and, and that pretty much sealed it. And the Falcons just didn't have the energy anymore. I think the Pats had the ball for over 50 minutes of the game, if you include the overtime, which is just crazy yeah. as well. The Falcons just didn't get the ball, um, despite some spectacular catches from Julio Jones. My God, um, as we like, to, as, I, as a, 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 me and my favorite journalist Bo we like to call him, we like to call him Quintavious. Um, <laughs> Quintavious is an animal, and um, he pulled off I think three or four out of this world catches, and. I thought, oh god, it's going to happen again. We're going to get beaten by a couple of spectacular catches. Like, like as a Pats fan if with history, you like you know that David Tyree in the famous helmet catch, like one play after a pass that Manning threw hit Asante Samuel dead in the hands and he dropped it. <laughs> Manning should have been sacked on that play, but he got it off. He he dodged out of the pocket, threw a dart. David Tyree catches it against his helmet, and that was. The Super Bowl, famously, where Tom Brady laughed at the thought when they thought the Giants were going to hold them to 14 points. And that's exactly what happened. I wasn't proud of that day. It wasn't a good day. Um, all the time that Manningham caught that one on the sideline in the rematch, which I'll never forgive Wes Welker for dropping that sitter. Um, that would have ended the game, effectively. Um, they came back from that one. And then, King, do you remember when against Seattle when Jermaine Curse makes that circus catch on, on, on with like a minute and a half to go? Yep. <laughs> Oh, like like I I was at I was at the O2 Arena, the Super Bash party for that Super Bowl. The pe- the Pats were in, and Wilson's up against it. Curse makes the catch, and I'm and I'm on my knees thinking, oh no, yeah. like, <laughs> not I, again. I think <laughs> I, I I'm pretty sure we're gonna get to it. Like I know, don't worry, people who didn't watch the Super Bowl, we're gonna get to the racing. But yeah, we will. We promise. Yeah, but <laughs> eventually. I think one big like. One of the big turning points of that game was probably when the Pats had the like the end the 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 last quarter where the Pats had to score two touchdowns each touchdown with a two point conversion. Yeah, we were down sixteen points, so you need a touchdown and you need to go for two twice and go to go two for two on the two point convergence, and we did. And one of those drives included an absolute miracle catch from Julian Edelman. Where he literally caught a ball off a man of, of like three piles of Falcon players' shoes. Um, you have to kind of see it to believe it. It was unbelievable concentration from Edelman to make that catch. It's nothing short of a borderline miracle, and I never have to be angry at David Tyree ever again. David, you're a, if you're listening, you're forever exonerated. <laughs> <laughs> I forgive you. Um. <laughs> um an unbelievable catch and, and just an unbelievable game in general. Brady's got five Super Bowls now, but like he's, I think it's now undisputed. He's probably now the greatest quarterback of all time. Um, he probably yeah. already was with four, even, even before frankly, this but... game, like this over a decade now version of the Patriots, like since 2000 is probably the greatest NFL dynasty of all time. A faceless, nameless machine, essentially. Um, I know that's how the, often Alabama in their college game is described, but that's how kind of how I feel about the Pats because they've gone through so many great players over the years, and despite no matter how many losses they've taken, they still find a way to win and find a way to get to the top. And we lost uh, our star player Gronkowski, who's probably the best player on this team for pure talent. We lost him halfway through the season. Pats didn't lose another game, like. Yeah. Which makes me wonder, oh, this probably, knowing Billy's probably going to trade him now. <laughs> <laughs> it's like we don't we don't need him. We can get like five guys for just Gronk. 
Yeah, we'll, we'll trade him. We'll get like a first, two thirds, and a flip, and a fifth for him. Perfect. We don't need Gronk anymore. He's expendable. Like, oh god. <laughs> because that's like something that Bill has done so much over the years. He's traded star players or let star players go to shock people, like Vince Wilfork, um, like the, the trade for Rodney Harris. Richard Seymour was another one. Um, you know, so many great players he's had. He's been. He's, he's never been afraid to cut people or or cut. High high profile players or trade like Chandler Jones even last year, who was close to all pro numbers, and then they traded him to Arizona so they could get someone to plug in the line, and yeah, it, it worked again. It's just terrifying now. The Pats just are just able just to keep winning regardless of circumstances. They're just one of the great winning dynasties of this of this era. It's. Uh, scary it's incredible and it was an incredible game if you, like, even if you're not an nfl fan if you've got the time go for it and watch it it's well worth the watch it was an incredible super bowl and um rj what's up with your mans uh you mean the the atlanta falcons the the perpetrators who blew the largest super bowl lead at halftime in history 25 points my friend 25 uh, points well what's up I, with your mans well <laughs> I, I can't say it was not entirely expected um Bomani Jones, when he used to have his own web series on SB Nation, made a video mm -hmm. in the middle of 2012 when the Falcons were undefeated at that point and yeah, had basically cited off by reminding everybody that bad things usually happen to the Atlanta Falcons. Sometimes their senior leaders get busted for soliciting a prostitute the night before their first Super Bowl <laughs> appearance. Sometimes they score so, only two yeah. points in a playoff game. Not yep. zero, not three, not but two one um, safety. Yes, and <laughs> this is probably going to top it. And, you know, for Atlanta sports in general, it's it's been a pretty bad time. Um, the Braves have one World Series and a whole lot of shortcomings and a yeah, whole lot of me like, mediocrity afterwards. They, they, they mentioned it during the game that the city of Boston, in terms of the major championships they had, I think had, like, uh, 23 major, like, mm -hmm. big championships, while the city of Atlanta had one. Had one just, championship. Just one, and it could have been so many more if if certain breaks for the Atlanta Braves in the 90s had turned out a different way, or if maybe the Hawks had been able to utilize the best of their talents. Like, they're still a good team, but you always got to feel like, well, it's the Hawks. They'll find a way to blow it in the playoffs. Shoutouts also to the Atlanta Thrashers, who managed to get a mention on the Super Bowl. <laughs> they did. Yes, the Atlanta Thrashers, who um, moved to Winnipeg and became the second iteration of the Winnipeg Jets in the NHL, meaning that Atlanta and... has now lost two NHL franchises and is never likely to get another third. Yeah. <sighs> I, I mean, it... at, least, at least Chris Jericho has an NHL team in his hometown. Yeah, That's but AJ, AJ Styles doesn't, and that, and that just makes me sad. Look, uh. it's 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 kind of miserable to be a, an aficionado of Atlanta sports, and I identify as a Buffalo Bills fan, but way back in the early 2000s, I was super into the Falcons from the era of mm. Michael Vick and Warwick Dunn, and I thought that team was going to go on to do great things. Ultimately, mm. they never did for, for many reasons um, that are well-documented. <clears throat> um, um, but I, I, I'll tell you what, I'm, I'm still proud of Atlanta. It's the most ethnically diverse. It's the gayest city in the South. The rap <laughs> scene is terrific. Um, Atlanta as a city is terrific. It's wonderful. I cannot be any prouder of this team that I embraced for two whole weeks. <laughs> and 
And considering how and considering how the NFC South has kind of seesawed back and forth over the years, I have all the confidence in the world that they'll just slump back to about being about seven to nine next year. Fuck. <laughs> yeah. Julio oh, Jones dude. is still a freak of an athlete. Yes, good God. Um, <laughs> Quintavious. But man, yeah, on the broadcast, uh, probably, probably the moment that gave everyone in Atlanta hope was when uh, Goskowski, the the kicker for the Patriots, missed the extra point, and Don't it was like, me. and and they reminded everyone that as a kicker, within like the past ten seasons, he had missed one point after, and this season he had missed five. <laughs> Oh my God, he, Robert, he's Al- so getting Robert cut. Alford pick sits though. I thought that was going to be like the defining moment of the game. The Boston Globe even had run a version of his pick sits being the cover story if the Patriots had lost yeah. the game. Yeah, because yeah. Brady ate shit trying to tackle him, basically. Yeah, it's like when Tracy Porter picked off Peyton Manning when the Saints had their miracle Super Bowl win. Like, it, it was Tracy Porter that basically just started barreling towards the end zone, and then that, and that was effectively the game-winning play. Oh, God. Like, like that was the one thing that Deadspin kind of took as a solace for Atlanta, because, like, Brady tried to tackle him on the pick six, and he went, he landed face first in the dirt, which was, even after him, it was kind of funny. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, like I said, it was an incredible Super Bowl. Um, my, my commiserations to the Atlanta brethren if you happen to be listening to this show bad luck old sports yeah, yeah good luck um, there's there, there's not too much to be ashamed though I mean Migos had the best year of any rap trio in 2016 yay yeah. <laughs> and I mean in, in two years Super Bowl 53 that's gonna be held in Atlanta maybe yes hopefully. in the Mercedes Benz Stadium which <laughs> in the Mercedes- um, which we have two NFL stadiums that are Oh, that are, have the naming rights owned by Mercedes-Benz Wait, for two rival Saints teams. The yes, the New Orleans Saints have the Mercedes-Benz Superdome, and the Atlanta oh, Falcons God. will open up Mercedes-Benz Stadium. They are rival teams in the same division, and Mercedes-Benz is paying for both stadiums. So, <laughs> huh? so you know, obviously, Toto Wolf and Nikki Lauder are just trying to support those damn Saints. <laughs> who had a firework display when the Patriots won because they're the most they're the saltiest sports yeah. town on earth. <laughs> Because oh, the Saints are literally the only thing going for New Orleans. Well, ever. <laughs> hey, they got Anthony Davis. Oh, wait, the Pelicans suck. Um, yeah, well, that's, that's a discussion for another day, I suppose. But uh, yeah, go anyway. Go watch it. Especially if the BBC coverage suits your needs, because the BBC coverage is so is super fun. They have Mike Colson and, Os- and OCU Manura. They are great. Um, and if, and if for some reason you need to scratch your Joe Buck itch, you, you you can go watch the Fox broadcast. Yeah, God, did you hear King? Most watched TV show in American history: 172 million viewers for that season. Yeah, of, of man, course. Lady Gaga is such a draw. Such yeah, a man, draw. big draw, big draw, big, big name. Draw. I can't believe she jumped off the top of the Hell in a Cell structure. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're all like, Sasha Banks, you should have done it. You should have done it. But Lady Gaga beat you. So in some ways, New York beat Boston last night. <laughs> Anything, King. Anything to cling on just because your Knicks suck right now. <laughs> oh, dear. Right. We'll segue this in along nicely because we we actually are able to tie this into Formula One, amazingly. Um, 
new you know, Liberty Liberty Media head honcho with magnificent stash Chase Carey um, made some comments a couple of weeks ago regarding Formula One and the future and the direction he wants to take it in. And one of the things he mentioned that drew a, that drew a lot of publicity and you know good old motorsport headlining websites. You know you got your headline right here. It was we want every race to feel like a Super Bowl. We want twenty one Super Bowls on the calendar. Well, twenty in this because it's a twenty yeah. race calendar. Yeah, he said we want twenty Super Bowls. He said, "Quote: We have twenty one races. We should have twenty one Super Bowls. They should be a week long extravagant. They should be week long extravaganzas with entertainment, media, and events that capture a whole city." Dang, that sounds awesome. <laughs> I like his ambition. <laughs> it, it sounds awesome. It's like, I, I have no. a few questions about that. Um, Go on, King. Is, number one, is it feasible? Number two, um, if they actually do do it, will it work? Number three, how quickly will it just become mon- how how quickly will like just these extravagances just become m- like run of the mill just mundane? Because number one, one of the things that makes the Super Bowl special is that there's only one a year, and it decides yeah. who the champion of the most popular sports league in the United States is. Yeah, you, like you can't really like it's like in wrestling case you can't make every episode of Raw a WrestleMania. You can try, but we as fans aren't stupid in the sense of we know this isn't going to be as special as going to a, a far out arena in a massive city and having ninety thousand people in attendance watch some wrestling. It's not quite the same, and that was the first one that came into my head when this was first announced. Was that okay? I get, I get where Chase is coming from. I do. I love his ambition, and I love the fact that he wants to make a Grand Prix more special. And you know, it reminds me a lot of WrestleMania access events that you'd often get like a week of amazing fan events and and coverage like citywide in a in a big event for the week, you know, building up to WrestleMania itself. Um, I could see the vibe he's getting with with that, and you know, there's potential for that in Formula One, but. I as as King pointed out briefly there, I think there's some big feasibility problems here with this. Like my, my first question is back to backs. What are you going to do about that? Because back to backs are unavoidable on the F1 calendar. I mean, we're getting more and more of them now because the calendar gets getting bigger and bigger. I think there's three on the F1 calendar this season that's coming up. I mean, you want races to be a week long festival sort of Forza Horizon sort of shit, like. The drivers are going to be flying from one country to the other, and you're going to have events to put on in the week building up to your Grand Prix with no drivers there for at least the first day, more than likely. I mean, it seems like the back-to-backs could be an issue there, King. Yeah, and probably one of the things that is possibly foreshadowing a Ross Braun heel turn in our future is that Uh Ross Braun said, hey... Uh, we can have twenty four races in a season. Like no, we we can pay for we can pay for the teams to have a second pit crew so they could you know rotate crews and make a twenty four race season feasible. No, 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 Ross, Ross. Well, at no. least he's being assertive with his decisions, unlike his former Ferrari running mate, who's now the president of the FIA. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, like. 21 Super Bowls? That's pushing. 24? That's a Super Bowl every other week in a year. Yeah, one Super Bowl is already exhausting enough when you consider how much media overload there is and how oh many, God, yes. how we overring the fucking narratives of each of each story. 
in the game and you want 24 of these. Granted, I do appreciate some of the events that actually go out of the that have been going out of the way to make this a big deal. Like yeah. the races in Australia, the United States, Singapore, they feel like big deals. Monaco, I could go on and on and on. They do, and again, like I said, they they are showing like the trends are showing that uh they are trying to make Formula One, Formula One races more of a weekend spectacle, not just for you know the race in itself. There's more to it. Like, I think RJ was absolutely right in my opinion in pointing out Singapore. Singapore is like becoming like Monaco two now in terms of they get big name draws to perform there. They, they have a concert every year now at that Grand Prix, and they get a big. I think it was. I think it was. Katie Perry, I think it was this past season. Yeah, yeah. I know that I, Lady Gaga performed there like a couple years back. Yeah. Coda got mm-hmm. Taylor Swift. Most yeah. people yeah, came to Coda this year not for the USGP, but just to see Taylor Swift do a concert. But but like uh, again, F one does have these concerts and they are a great thing, but they're not televised. Like those concerts are never televised. Like one of the big uh. one of the big things that makes the Super Bowl so like just mouth-watering to any sports executive is that it's the most watched television event in the United States. Yeah, and and the thing about Super Bowl as well is that I know a lot of people that don't are not bothered about the football but will happily watch the halftime show because the halftime show is basically an amazing mini concert crammed into 15 minutes. Hell, I they mean, would watch the advertisements. The freaking yes, advertisements the have become as big a deal as this as the Super Bowl game itself. Absolutely. I mean, and these companies are paying over a million bucks per second for screen time during the Super Bowl. That's what a big deal is, where companies will, will spend tens of millions of dollars to put these amazing one-off adverts in Super Bowls. I mean, we saw the Nissan commercial there a couple of years ago announcing their Le Mans project coming back to the world, and it was a, um interesting commercial, yeah, probably, to say the least. Probably <laughs> more people watch that Nissan ad than the 24 Hours of Le Mans. Oh, yeah. like I can probably say that with confidence. More yeah. people watched Audi's uh, ad from this year, advocating yeah. for equal play for women in the workplace, than they probably have watched any of Audi's 13, 14 victories in the 24 Hours of Le Mans from 2000 to 2016. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is a massive deal. And, and I think, like, we already reached the point with Formula One where it's, like, hard to actually think of any race as being a particularly big deal. Like, even Monaco is doesn't feel like a big deal compared to any other race in the calendar because it's just so oversaturated. It's not yeah. like other sports where... People like the the average person doesn't watch every single week of the ATW. Man, we can't we can't like, even I'm, guarantee that Singap- that uh, Silverstone and Monza are going to be on the yeah. calendar every year. Yeah, like like the average like the average person on the street doesn't watch every single week of like the ATP World Tour for tennis, but they will watch like at least one of the Grand Slams. Indeed, not everybody's going to watch a snooker event, but they'll tune in for the Masters, the UKs, and the Worlds, the big three on the calendar. Like, it's like we as consumers of sports have now become a bit more cherry picky for better or worse because we, we have less free time now than we did 20 years ago. We're, with everything being on TV, inadvertently, a negative downside that is that it's made events in general less special. I mean, nobody watches 
everything the WWE Network puts out, for example, but they have hours and hours of content every week where we are now picking and choosing. And they've got, what, 19 pay-per-views yeah. coming up this year, from what I've been told? Who's yeah. going to pay? For, who's gonna watch all 19 pay-per-views? They're not going to. Yeah, but the we, thing is, they're diehards who make the jump to pay for the 995 while the WWE can still focus on making their big four pay-per-views more special than, you know, the run-of-a-mill monthly pay-per-view. That's the thing that, that we have, you know, sports leagues and associations try to make special events special. Formula One doesn't do that. It tries to make every single event equal, which does not help anyone. Yeah, absolutely. Um... I can't, I can't argue with that in the slightest. Um, yeah, they are trying to build up their their pillars of Formula One, and Formula One doesn't really have that right now. And I, I completely agree. Like the ones you'd, you'd you'd probably point out just by the top of your head, thinking Monaco doesn't feel as special as it used to be. Silverstone, most attended Grand Prix, most money circulated for sure, but is always at risk of being shut down because Silverstone as a track is not sustainable. Monza, <laughs> the definition of unsustainable over the last few years, and the government is, you know, looking for more reasons not to support it if it can help it. That's three uh, out of your four theoretical yeah. Grand Slam races that Formula One could have and could make into a big deal and probably should. Absolutely. I mean, hell, even IndyCar got the idea with the Triple Crown centered yeah. around the Indianapolis 500. The World Endurance Championship goes out of its way to make Le Mans the big race, even more so than the World Endurance Championship itself. NASCAR Absolutely. has the Daytona 500. Yeah, like, yeah. like, let's see. Probably, na people complain that NASCAR has too many races. One thing I don't like, pro tennis has way too many tournaments. They're about... Agreed. On, on, on the tennis calendar... There are more tournaments than weeks. There's man, 68. Man, there, baseball but, season two. Baseball yeah. season is too fucking long. Yeah, there's there's 68 tournaments in a tennis season, and like they they only care about like they they big up the Grand Slam as the big four because they know people are not gonna watch every single week. There's tennis played every single week of the year. You could watch either online for free or on ESPN. I'd say an obscure one for sure, King, as well. The world of snooker and how much that's changed in the last 20 years where when I grew up watching guys like Stephen Hendry and Mark Williams 20 years ago, there was complaints there was not enough events on the snooker calendar every year, so the players couldn't really make a living out of it on a professional basis. Now, there's 128 players on, their, on as, as pros on their world tour, and now the people are complaining. Like Mark Selby, the reigning world champion, is like, complained two years ago that there was too many events and he was suffering from burnout, which is why he got knocked out of the world in 2013 in the second round. And it's now gotten to the point where there's arguments that the sport is now unsustainable at the bottom level because you don't get any money for getting knocked out in the first round of a tournament. And there's now arguments, okay, should we subsidize the payments now for players? Otherwise, they're spending too much on costs and provisions to go around the world and play games in like China and in Eastern Europe. Like, that's yeah. how much sport is changing now, where we've gone from not having enough events and to changing it now, where places like Eurosport are airing literally everything. Like, I found out the other day that, like, and RJ can relate to this one, Darts, Michael Van Gerwen won 25 tournaments last year. I didn't know Darts had 25 tournaments in a calendar <laughs> year now. Yeah. I was like, what? Yep, <laughs> and I'm probably only going to watch the World Dart Championships in December and January. Admittedly yeah. so. 
Yeah, and that's the big one because the Premier League is not a big deal until the final comes around, like three months later. Like having making a weekly format just doesn't work for the average sports fan anymore. Like, like even like I don't think even the most hardcore of like basketball fans, for example, are going to no. watch all eighty-two no. of the team's games in a season. Let alone baseball, where it's one hundred and sixty games. If you don't make the playoffs, <laughs> yeah, so. you don't make. And like <laughs> I, I get why Formula One wants to make every event equal because it's always compared to you know European football, where finals don't, like. A Super Bowl-type final doesn't exist in Europe. Like, you could try to say that the UEFA Champions League final is as big as a Super Bowl. No, no, it's not. No, it's not. Even not even close. Not even close. Like, not if not if Leicester City has a chance to win it. <laughs> you you shut has, up. Has a, <laughs> has a chance to win it in the same year they might get relegated. What the fuck is soccer? Football is, in the words of John Boyce, football is weird. Um, yeah, yeah, more on that another time. But you're absolutely right. I mean, this is like the the potential advertising and the money that's in. Like, oh, football has got is soccer in general is a massive sport, but in terms of TV coverage, the Champions League is nowhere near the Super Bowl. Not even no. close in terms of spectacle. So. Yeah, I can. I totally see why F1 and why Chase Carey wants this because he, you know, he's American. He loves the Super Bowl. He knows of the, the the marketing potential of a Super Bowl, and we've seen sports and the way sports are being broadcasted is changing as we speak. But for me, I don't think. I think that's a little bit too. Because I mean, look at it this way as well. Who is flying? Who is taking a week off work to go to a Grand Prix? No one. Not unless they're booking it like months in advance. I mean, we're not we're not all Sarah Connors. <laughs> like that, that's Sarah one of, that's one of the things where the Super Bowl comparison would be a terrible comparison because I'm pretty sure mm. the cheapest Super Bowl ticket is in the range of hundreds of dollars. Yeah, and most of the time you can't get a ticket anyway, even if you wanted to try and get one because all of them goes to media, you know, players, friends, and families, you know, VIPs, all that. Uh, it's shit. it's it's not that much because usually like. The stadiums that the NFL choose are their largest, so it's. I would say, like, if you wanted to go buy one straight from like the NFL website, super like or SuperBowl.com, you could. But it's like the prices are just absurdly high. This is we, why. We're, this is we're why. We're saying this is F one fans. <laughs> this is why Formula One should set its sights lower, I believe, and aim for the kind of spectacle that you get. For a Thursday night football game between the Cleveland Browns <laughs> and the Jacksonville Jaguars, <laughs> like I th- like I think there's some goals that the NFL, I mean that Formula One needs to be realistic. It, every race can't be a Super Bowl. I think they should go back to the old school where certain races are clearly more important than others. Like go back to where they had like you know the Grand Approve where 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 you had a set of like eight races. Let's say. Ross Braun got his dream of 24 races, and you set out eight races being more important than, you know, the the other 16 on the calendar. And sure. say, let's go back to the old days of Formula 1, where all the races didn't count towards championship. So, the big eight races count towards the championship, probably offer more points, and you also have to compete in probably, like eight or ten other races. So, number one, you have events that are probably bigger, better, and people would probably want to go out of their way to watch them because it's mm-hmm. going to be... You can new- open the door for uh, part-time teams and wildcard drivers from a certain yes. nation. Yes, because if, if Lewis Hamilton doesn't have to... Like, if Lewis Hamilton or Valtteri Botas 
doesn't necessarily have to compete the whole 24 race calendar. Uh, like, say, four of the races, they swap out, you know, Botas for, you know, George Russell. It'd be it'd be interesting for the diehard fans to see, like, how well Russell does in a Mercedes. True, very much so. But um, Formula 1 doesn't think in that way. They only half-arse these matches. Like, for example, having a double-point season finale in Abu Dhabi. Just what the fans <laughs> wanted. Um, Game 7 moments, guys. Game 7 moments in a track where you can't overtake anybody. Ah, uh, great. Um, C2010 for more information. I'm currently reading Mott Webber's book at the moment regarding that, and it's, he's totally not salty as all hell. <laughs> oh, you, you, you mad, RJ? Are you mad? Don't mind, don't mind me. Just, uh, just gonna hide into my Alonzo hoodie and uh, just, I'm just gonna cry a bit. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> very much so. I mean, like I said, I, I, I like the ambition of Chase Carey. I really do. But I also just kind of feel, I think, like this this might be a little bit too ambitious. I think there's bigger issues that are of a concern. And yeah, because like, like, he's reaching a bit here. Like, probably the biggest issue here. Could you ever have a Formula One race be as realistically unpredictable as last night's Super Bowl? Not a hope in hell. <laughs> Not unless, Not, unless <laughs> Not unless it rains. Not unless it rains. And Mercedes take each other out at the first corner again. Well, well. To be fair, we got that last year. It was one of the best races of the year. Amazingly, yeah. yeah. Uh, when we actually all still kind of liked Mark Max Verstappen a little bit, just a little bit. Just yeah, just just a little, just, just a little. Not so much anymore. But, uh, yeah, we will segue that nicely. Um, again, let us know your thoughts in the comments. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that one. We're totally now going to magically, through the power of jump cuts, talk about some sports cars, apparently. Everyone, Dre's decided to step out for a moment while me and RJ talk about the sports cars, which Dre probably only watched the highlights for and doesn't feel comfortable enough to talk about in depth. I mean, in fairness, it was 36 hours of racing that we're going to try and digest and break down into an hour or less between the Rolex 24 hours of Daytona, the first race of the IMSA season, and the Liquid Molly Bathurst 12-hour race, one of the three events of the Intercontinental GT Challenge, but really a standout race in its own without any championships whatsoever. Yeah. Let's wind it back to Daytona because it's been a couple of weeks and we hadn't really had time to discuss that at length. Um, this was this was a good one. This was a good race to kick off a brand new era for IMSA. Yeah, and it, it seems like we've just come off the start of a brand new era for IMSA. Really, like it—it it doesn't seem too far, too long ago since you know the American Le Mans series and Grand Am merged. Yeah, and there, and I will say this: that people kind of were willing to give up on it after like the first couple races of the 2014 season. Ooh, boy, are you missing out now? Because. <laughs> This new product is 
it, it's really good. And the DPI platform really showed its strength, particularly from the GM side of things as Cadillac took a one, two finish. Uh, but it wasn't, but it wasn't just as simple as just ho-hum routine domination. Although on paper, when you analyze the race and qualifying results that the Cadillac DPI VR was by far the most dominant car Going into this race, a lot of people were thinking maybe the uh, the global LMP2 cars, the spec models with the four base bodies, the four base chassis, and the uh, the spec Gibson engine, maybe that was going to be the car to beat. Uh, maybe Nissan had some surprises, or maybe Mazda would figure something out. But no, no, it was Cadillac by a large margin. They had the aero advantage, they had the straight line speed. But I will tell you this: it is. One thing just to have the best car, it is another thing entirely to come through in the clutch when your team needs it. And that's exactly what Rain Taylor Gracing did, especially in the final 10 minutes of the race, battling the Mustang Sampling Racing Team. And somewhat of a controversial finish to this <laughs> one with under 10 minutes to go. Yes, very controversial. Like, it, it almost felt Formula E-like, where it, it seemed like, oh, we might actually have a penalty decide who wins this 24-hour race. Right. Um, it is about seven minutes to go. Ricky Taylor in the Wayne Taylor Racing Cor uh, Cadillac is battling Felipe Albuquerque in the Mustang Sampling Corvette. Uh, excuse me. I don't know why I want to keep saying Corvette. I feel like I'm stuck in old Daytona <laughs> yeah, prototype. Yeah, mode. we are. It's, uh, so it's Ricky Taylor and Felipe Albuquerque. Albuquerque leads by a couple of car lengths. They're about to start a new lap and they're going to go in. They're going to go break into turn one and two, which is a heavy braking zone. Albuquerque's trying to hold his line, but from three or four car lengths back, Ricky Taylor just goes dive bomb city on Felipe Albuquerque and lunges up the inside. Now, Albuquerque only has about a half second to react, um, at which point he could either give the lane to Taylor and try and repass him, or turn on on him and try and defend his position that way. Albuquerque decided to uh, turn in on Ricky Taylor just a bit, and it sent him spinning, which mm. had Wayne Taylor, the team boss of Wayne Taylor Racing, a little worried that his team might be penalized in the final minutes of this race. Um, now, I personally saw it as, as just a racing incident where both drivers somewhat at fault, and, uh, and it eventually canceled itself out and the end result was less than a second between the two drivers at the finish others have said that ricky taylor should have been penalized for what was an obviously a zero percentage move um how do you see it king uh i like even like a zero percentage move those happen in endurance racing because when you're out there for an entire day of racing, you're not going to be thinking straight. And usually, for the most part, those don't get penalized because those happen fairly often. <laughs> and you like fairly often, but they don't normally could determine the out like the outright winner of the race. And usually, like you said, over time they average themselves out. And I don't. I think they made the right call in not giving a penalty. Right. I I personally would have had a bit more of a problem if the race had been decided um, on, a, on a penalty in the last five minutes. Yeah. 
I, I feel like if there would have been a major, major uproar, considering who else was with that Wayne Taylor racing team? <laughs> Why the star attraction from the outside from outside of IMSA? That would be one four-time NASCAR Cup Series champion, Jeff Gordon, who now joins an elite group of drivers who have won both the Daytona 500 and the Rolex 24. Yes, a, a very elite group. Which which it was like an elite group of now four guys. One guy I did not assume would be on that list. Right. So that is so the um so the four drivers in question, now including Jeff Gordon, include Mario Andretti, who also has a world championship to his name, AJ Ford, who is also a four time winner of the Indianapolis five hundred, and Jamie McMurray. Who won this? Who won the Rolex Twenty Four back in two thousand and two thousand and seven? I believe it was. Yeah, that was like the peak uh, Cup guys doing the Twenty Four as sort of like an All Star gig. Oh my goodness! Yeah, I remember back in two thousand four. It was when Daytona Prototype was still new, and it seemed like half the field was NASCAR Net still Cup guys. Yeah, those those were good days. Those were good days. Oh my goodness! And yeah, we saw a lot of uh, we saw a lot of great talent coming over from uh, from overseas and even from American competition. There were at least a half dozen full time IndyCar series drivers in three different classes of IMSA in yeah. the Rolex Twenty Four this year. And it was <laughs> we even what Buddy Rice was even in the race in yes in the prototype challenge. Buddy Rice, former uh, former Indianapolis 500 winner, and Connor Daly was in the Prototype Challenge field. Um, prototype Challenge did not have such a fond send-off from their final Rolex 24 at Daytona before the class is phased out at the end of this season. But amidst all the chaos and a lot of Prototype Challenge cars getting involved in accidents, which is a bit unfair because the Orica FLM09 is a bit difficult to drive for yeah. drivers at any skill level, much less a true pro amateur category. Give credit to the PC winners, Performance Tech Motorsports, who came in with a very, very young driver lineup. They hardly made any mistakes, and their number 38 car, driven by James French, Nicholas Bull, Patricio Award, and Kyle Masson, ended up winning their category in the final prototype challenge event at the Rolex 24. That was a good job. And I'd seen uh Pato award and James French run in road to Indy this past year. They were both solid. Um, Patricio Ward should be an Indy lights driver, but I think he's going to find a niche in IMSA over the course of this season. And for many, many years to come. Yeah. I, I definitely see him get a, see him getting a seat in DPI next year. Cause most likely based on how this race went and probably how the rest of the season will, we, we, We'll most likely see more DVI entries next year. He'll probably get a seat with some team out there. Remember, it was O'Ward who dominated the first half of the Pro Mazda Championship when he didn't even have a full season to him guaranteed past the month of May at Indianapolis. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Ultimately, he ended up finishing second in the championship, but still, he's a great talent. Um, speaking of great talents on the other side of things, on the other side of the spectrum. I want to give a special shout out to Matt Sangelelli of the winning Wayne Taylor Racing Cadillac team. This is his final race. He was a former Rolex 24 champion, and he goes out as a two-time winner of this race. And I will say this, he looked like he was 
in his prime. He didn't look like a 50-year-old driver who was ready to hang up the helmet at times. No. Like, in his words, he was there to finish business because, believe it or not, he was actually a part of the original Cadillac LMP factory team back then when they tried to take down Audi, and it wasn't pretty back then. But, yeah, he, he definitely finished business during the Rolex 24. Oh, yes. Angelelli drove some great stints in the dry, in the wet. Um, he really rolled back the years. He's always had the reputation of being one of the hardest chargers in the series. Um, and it was a great it was a great thing to see him go out on top. The Italian guy, as he was as he was <laughs> referred to as from our friends at the Grid Girls podcast when they briefly recapped the Rolex 24 themselves. And I'll say this about the Mustang sampling racing team that finished second. Fair play to them. It ultimately didn't work out for them, but they did claw back the uh, the deficit to under half a, to under a second at the finish line. And they themselves drove a pretty good race. Joao Barbosa, Felipe Albuquerque, and Christian Fittipaldi mm. were as part of this team. And I also want to give a special mention to third place, Mark Goosens, Ranger van der Zanda, and Rene Rast of Visit Florida Racing and their Riley Mark 30 prototype. They were decided underdogs in the prototype category going into this race, but they were able to gamble on on it just being a wet race, so they gambled on a wet setup. And when it was raining, they were making inroads on the Cadillacs better than anybody had expected, in particular Rast and Vanderzanda. Yeah, like, if, if it was probably rained a bit harder for a bit longer, this race could have been a completely different story. Oh, my goodness, yes. And Vanderzanda, another product of the Prototype Challenge class, who was finally getting his chance to step up to the big time, and he certainly delivered. And keep in mind, the Riley Mark 30, there's only going to be one of them at this year's 24 Hours of Le Mans. This is not one of the more... Um, one of the more sought-after prototype chassis in LMP2. So to see them finishing third, that bodes well for them. Yeah, that... Going forward. Really well. Like, as you said, they're going to be the only Riley at Le Mans. The, the World Endurance Championship for full-season entries are all Oricas this year. Oh, my goodness, yeah. And shout-outs to all the Oricas who just managed to fall a bit short, in particular Rebellion Racing and Dragon Speed, who had these all-star driver lineups and for one reason or another, the brakes didn't go their way. Not to mention, of course, for Mazda, who somehow managed to catch fire in the second race in a row. Uh, that, that was a heartbreak moment. I, like, for anyone who follows me on Twitter, you know that I was, you know, pulling hard for the Cadillac. But no one ever wants to see their team just walk away with it. They want to see a good fight. And I was hoping the Mazda could be the foil to the Cadillacs. And it just... It didn't turn out to be Mazda's day at the 24. No, it did not. Mazda, um, they use what is essentially a modified version of their Indy Lights engine by AER, which is fairly handy for Indy Lights, but for whatever reason in IMSA prototype competition, it just cannot hold up. It's, it's combustible. It's a glass cannon. It is very quick when it is holding up, but it just doesn't seem to hold up often. I went to last year's Rolex 24, which was the last race for the Mazda Lola prototype with this same engine, and one of their cars caught fire in the final hour of the race. Mm. So I was hoping for better things, and it turns out that 
no, Mazda still have major reliability issues. Mazda and Nissan really seem to come in on the back foot compared to Cadillac. It shouldn't be, I mean, I know that people were griping about Cadillac. Maybe they were sandbagging during preseason testing and that they only won the race because they had the best car. But in fairness, they came to the dance more prepared than Mazda or Nissan did. And I'm not willing to punish them for it or discredit them for that in any way. Yeah, I mean, there there's something about General Motors in general when it comes to IMSA. They always go at it 100%, whether it be with, you know, the Cadillac TPIs or the Corvettes in the GT categories, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. But they always give a true full factory effort, and it showed here at the Rolex 24. Oh, goodness. And, and obviously, as the IMSA season progresses... Uh, Mazda and Nissan are going to continue to make improvements to their cars, try and figure out what they can learn from Daytona that they can apply to other tracks. And the tracks are going to be a lot different over the course of the season. Like Sebring is a much different track from Daytona and of course, Road Atlanta, Watkins Glen and all the other venues that they go to. It's not going to be a straight up Cadillac runaway. Granted, I said this several times during the Rolex 24. So take that with a grain of salt. Um, (laughs) Let's talk about GTLM. GTLM, which is essentially GT Pro by another name, this has often been IMSA's star class going back to when it was the American Le Mans series. And boy, did it ever have a star performance. <laughs> yes, Ford, Ford Chip Ganassi Racing did ultimately win the class with Dirk Moeller, Joey Hand, and IndyCar's Sebastian Bourdais. But it was a close fight over that last hour between Ford, Porsche with the new mid-engine 911 RSR, and even Ritzy Competizione with the only Ferrari 48 in the field gave them all a pretty good fight. Yeah, like for some reason, whether it be the how well they balance the cars out or just how skilled these drivers are, it is always uh, just it's always a 24-hour sprint with these cars. I I don't know how they do it, but every Rolex 24, it's like this. And man, oh man, it delivered this year. Oh my goodness, yes. Um, We had the top seven cars in GTLM all finish on the same lap. That is all, that would be unheard of 10 or 15 years ago. That'd be unheard of in Formula One 10 or 15 years ago to have seven cars finishing on the lead lap. Yes, and out of that top seven, you had Ford, Porsche, Ferrari, and Corvette all represented. It wasn't a Ford lockout of the podium either. Um, It was Porsche with their new 911 RSR. That car looks good. Yeah, the mid. I know it's it's very controversial that they've moved the engine up a few inches (laughs) on the 911 RSR to exploit some uh, GT loopholes, but to their credit, it worked out for them, and Patrick Pele and James Collado had a great fight for a second that came down to, I, I want to say it was like a tenth of a second at the line between Pele's Porsche and James Collado's Ferrari. Yeah, probably. It was it was a good battle. Um, congratulations to Dirk, Joey, and Sebastian, who have now won the 24 Hours of Le Mans and the Rolex 24, all within a span of about six or seven months. That's a That's a good, solid team for the future. Yeah, like what? They win at Sebring. That's the calendar year triple crown. Yeah, they uh, they've got a good chance to do it. Um, 
That Ford GT, oh my goodness. I know it is a controversial car, but don't at me. It's beautiful. <laughs> yeah, it's I'm beautiful. Gla- I'm, gl- I'm glad to see that it is doing well. Um, which leaves us with the one class that we haven't talked about. It is GT Daytona, and this was the biggest class in terms of numbers. And looking up and down that entry list, there were some absolute studs in some of these driver lineups. Um, not just from IndyCar guys like Ryan Hunter Ray and Graham Ray Hall, not just from guys like Shane Van Gisbergen, who we'll talk about more when we get to Bathurst. Um, so out of that field, it was very much a pleasant surprise to see a true pro-am team in Allegra Motorsports come out on top. Yes, yes. I mean, it's strangely enough, GT, like GTD or it's essentially a GT3 category. GT- it is all GT3. Yeah, yeah. GT3 was, you know, envisioned as an amateur category. And man, oh man, it has gone way past the vision. But Allegra has kept that vision alive. So this is this was the five-driver lineup that Allegra Motorsports had. You had Carlos de Casada, who's also the team principal. He won the GT class at Rolex back in 2007 under a much different rule set. Then there's Carlos' son, Michael de Casada. Then you have Michael Christensen, who's really the only pro driver in the lineup. He's a Porsche factory driver, has raced and won races in Porsche Super Cup. Very accomplished guy. And then with all three of them, you had Jesse Lazar, who was the Porsche Cup champion of the United States, and Daniel Morad, who was the Porsche Carrera Cup champion of Canada. All five of them came together to beat some of the best drivers in the world and some of the most outstanding cars in the world. I mean... Just look at some of the names they finished ahead of. Jerome Blinkamolen, Christopher Mees, Ryan Hunter-Ray, Townsend Bell, Andre Caldarelli from Super GT, Catherine Legg was in it, Graham Rahal was in it, Shane Van Gisbergen was involved in this somehow. And it's this team that nobody would have ever expected to be a factor for the win that ends up taking it. And deservedly so, the listeners of IMSA Radio voted them to win the Spirit of the Race Award, which is pretty much the MVP of the race award. The one that Catherine Legg won last year for her performance in this race uh, with the Delta wing. So that was very good to see. Yeah. It's, it's always great to see amateurs, not only participate well, but actually succeed and get on the podium and, you know, actually win their class. Oh yes. And while these amateurs obviously have some racing experience, even if in some lesser known fields, this was still a very good accomplishment for them. For Porsche, we have three different makes on the GTD podium. You had seven different manufacturers lead the race at some point. I'll tell you what, the Acura NSX of Michael Shank Racing looked solid. Yeah, it looked like, solid. It should it looked it looked like it should have won the race, but Fifth place was not a bad result for the lead car, anchored by Ryan Hunter-Ray. Yeah, it's it's not bad for a debut in a 24-hour race. While they didn't get on the podium, they they certainly have a great season in IMSA ahead for them. Oh, yes. Um, unfortunately, there were some disappointments in the field. We talked briefly about Mazda. Um Scuderia Corsa and their Ferrari looked like they were on their way to take the GT Daytona win until an engine failure in the final quarter of the race, which kind of stinks because I was really pulling for them. Obviously, Christina Nielsen and her success 
uh, as an IMSA champion last year was a big factor in that. But she is going to the 24 Hours of Le Mans next year, this year, um, which is awesome to see. Um, commiserations also to to Lexus GT3 Racing. Oh boy, this was another car that looked very strong, but couldn't make it to the finish when Scott Pruitt rode off the car in the second hour of the race. Oh, that that is like something you you don't normally see from Scott Pruitt. I don't know if it's coming with age, but come on, Pruitt. Yeah, remember, right? Remember, Scott Pruitt is a guy who has won races in the Champ Car World Series. Um, he is the winningest driver in the Rolex 24's history, and he was only downgraded to a silver driver rating because he is 56 years old, even though even though evidence has shown that he has still got it well into his 50s. Yeah. Unfortunately, he didn't necessarily show that when he just spun the car under its own power. Yeah, that it was a real just, like, head-in-the-hands moment where, like, admittedly, like, Scott Pruitt... When, when he was in the top class, was one of my favorite guys in the series. Always solid guy. One of the fastest guys out there, period. But just, uh, I'm not saying you should hang it up, but man. You, someday, so- someday Sage Karam will get a chance to drive a car before <laughs> the Indianapolis 500 this year. Which, good for Sage for getting a, another ride with Dryer Rainbow Racing. Awesome. Yes, awesome. Funniest moment of the Rolex 24 had to come on Sunday morning when Scott Sharp in one of the Tequila Patron Nissans um, ran into and bulldozed his way onto the track with a Continental Tire billboard. (laughs) (laughs) Gotta get that ad money. (laughs) Yes, if you haven't seen it, um, Scott Sharp kind of slid off the track in the wet conditions. Continental Tires, unfortunately, do not have the greatest reputation for building wet weather tires. It is a big reason why a GT Le Mans car ended up winning the 2015 Petit Le Mans outright. Um, things still haven't improved much since then, so it was kind of funny to see Scott Sharp pushing around this Continental Tire billboard, like this whole thing. And this isn't even the first time in the last calendar year that this has happened at Insta Competition, because uh, I believe it was John Pugh and the Michael Shank Racing prototype that ended up doing the same thing at the race at Coda. Yes, yes, at, at Lone Star Le Mans. Right, gotta get, gotta get that, gotta push that advertising in these new and innovative ways. <laughs> uh, it was, it was a, it was a good time to watch the Rolex Twenty Four with what little I could. Um, and of course, every class winner did their part to ensure victory for their team, and they did tremendously. And so great to see the Taylor brothers, great to see Jeff Gordon and Matt Sangelelli win the Rolex 24 at Daytona. They're off to Sebring, the Taylor brothers. Jeff Gordon is going back to the announcer's booth, and Matt Sangelelli is going to hang up the helmet, at least for a bit, although evidence shows that he could probably still run this race a couple more times. Yeah. <laughs> and as we are recording this on a Thursday, February the 9th, we can tell you that the Taylor brothers will be joined at Sebring by former GP3 Series champion, former Red Bull Jr., Alex Lynn. Yeah, it's going to be a very interesting lineup. Lynn is quick. Lynn is quick. He's, you know, not only... uh, Oh, he's not only a former GP2 driver, Williams Reserve driver now, you know, in Formula E with Virgin. GP2 race winner. Yeah, GP2 race winner. This... I mean, uh, until, until you know, the departure of Felipe Massa, he seemed to be the heir apparent to the Williams second seat. That didn't happen, but I would say this is just as good. 
I would say this is an even better opportunity because it gives them an immediate chance to win. So if you want to send your congratulations to Alex Lynn on social media, you could do so by tweeting him at Alex Lynn. That's A-L-E-K-S-M-L-Y-N-N-E at Twitter.com. Love you, Alex. Uh, Bathurst. The Liquid Molly Bathurst 12-hour race. Um, one of the races from Humble Beginnings, which has since become a big, big deal with the best drivers, not only from Australia and New Zealand, but also the world over, with manufacturer support, with all sorts of different classes. These are the fastest cars on Mount Panorama Circuit in Bathurst. Yep, and for oh, and for goodness. and for all those GT GT drivers who couldn't get their endurance racing fix at Daytona, just flew out to Australia for another round of twelve. Oh my goodness! Yeah, I want to. I I want to say that somebody had done like the full sixty hours, uh, in between three weeks, between the twenty four hours of Dubai, the twenty four hours of Daytona, and finally the twelve hours of Bathurst. I want to say it was Jerome Bleakamolen. That seems like something he would do, but I don't know that for sure. Anyway, let's talk about the Bathurst twelve hour. This race had the most star studded entry list in history, and. No surprise that one of the more star-studded teams came to the fore. The Marinella Motorsport Ferrari took pole position, winning the Alan Simonson Memorial Trophy for the pole winner, which was a pretty emotional deal because yeah. before his passing, Alan Simonson set the lap record at Bathurst in a Marinella Motorsport Ferrari. So it was great to see them win the pole trophy for one of their former guys. Um the story going into this race was, of course, going to be the union of Craig Lowndes and Jamie Wincup in this Ferrari, which for you NASCAR viewers, imagine imagine somebody putting Jeff Gordon and Jimmy Johnson in the same car in GT Daytona, and that's pretty much it. Yes. God, God help us all. <laughs> and it, Lowndes and Wincup, to their part, they were consummate professionals, but they were not the standout drivers of their team. Enter Finland's Tony Vlander, who proves that, yes, a Finnish driver at Ferrari can do great things for his team. <laughs> oh, God. He's like, oh, someone's, someone out there always has to hold true the phrase, if you want to win, hire a Finn. Kimmy, not so much lately, but Tony is holding up his end of the bargain. Tony Vlander took pole position for the Miramelo Sport team, and in his final stint in the race... Um, he was consistently pulling out seconds per lap of a lead advantage over the rest of the field. Um, John Heidel on Midweek Motorsports said that it may be one of the greatest single stints in all of endurance racing that he had ever seen. John Heidel has commentated the Le Mans 24 hours for the better part of 24, 25 years and various other racing series around the world. So I would trust his opinion yes. on this. And from what I saw, I I've got to agree with him. Tony Vlander had one of those breakout races, and he's been a good driver for a long time. He was great at the Rolex 24 just the week before. He's a two-time FIA GT champion. He's been a race winner and a champion in the World Endurance Championship for Ferrari. He's been good, but this might be the best that he's ever been. Yeah, that that is probably when, when he finally hangs it up and there's a career highlight reel, this race is going to be in it. Yeah, Marinella Motorsport, if you look at the results, you might think, well, they won by a lap and they took pole position. This was just a routine race. Oh, on the contrary. Um, 
there were there were some complications which should uh some complicate that is the understatement of the year rj right <laughs> um there were a lot of really awesome teams that had a chance to win this race um one team in particular that was being pointed to as a favorite were the mercedes amg scott taylor motorsport htp motorsport team i know that's a mouthful but they had assembled one of the best driver lineups in the field. Shan Van Gisbergen won the race last year for McLaren. Supercars champion. One of the most relentless drivers in all of world motorsports. There's a reason why he's Adam Johnson's guy. Craig Baird. Craig Baird has won more domestic one-make racing series in Australia than you can count on two hands. And Mauro Engel has been a consummate pro for Mercedes-AMG for many, many years. A former Blancpain GT champion has won some big races for Mercedes before. This could have been a great team, but for one reason or another, it all managed to come apart over the course of 12 hours. Starting fairly early on in the race with the New Zealander Baird. Uh, he, uh, he, on a restart from a safety car, Craig Baird just decided to go to try a lunge <laughs> underneath Craig Lowndes before they'd even thrown the green flag. And what had happened was... Craig Lowndes ended up getting punted off into the gravel trap at the final corner and nearly fell off the lead lap as a result. Uh, there, there's something about Ma Mount Panorama. You you always think that, oh, I'm going to have problems overtaking someone at the top of the mountain. But, you know, you know the, the last quarter, the first quarter, you know, those are, you know, box standard 90 degree quarters. Nothing terrible could happen there, right? The pr wrong. <laughs> proven wrong. Right. It's it's pretty it's pretty uh it's pretty fascinating to think that Bathurst has a corner called Hell Corner and on the surface it only looks like it's about the 15th most dangerous corner on the track. <laughs> it's just it's just a simple uh left-hander third third gear 90 degree corner. What could possibly go wrong? Um Baird ended up getting a stop and go penalty for that, which he came out right in front of the car the Marinello Motorsport Ferrari that he had punted off just earlier in the race. Which I thought was hilarious. <laughs> but um, we fast forward later on into the race. Um, Mauro Engel, Craig Baird, and Shane Van Gisbergen have all done a very good job to get the car up into second place. They make one last roll of the dice on Van Gisbergen's final stint to go the rest of the race without changing tires. Um, it doesn't quite work out. And then for some reason, Shane Van Gisbergen just has a wretched final hour to the race. He punts off the Porsche Cup class leader, one of the slower cars, which we'll talk to it about in a bit about drivers in GT3 respecting the slower cars out there, because I think that is a point that needs yes. to be made. Um, so Van Gisbergen is about to be told that he has a drive through penalty on his way for, unavo for avoidable contact, and then he loses control going down the mountain and wrecks the car. Yeah. That was uh, very, I, I want yeah, I'm going to say it. that was a very stupid way to end your day. Like, there's no other way I could put this. Like, and I'm sure Johnson will agree with this. And even Van Gisbergen agreed with it in his post-race comments. Like, he wasn't driving at his best. Shane Van Gisbergen is a spectacular driver who is willing to go over the edge. And when you're willing to go over the edge like that, Sometimes you do make mistakes and sometimes you do make um, somewhat questionable decisions, whether it's 
wrecking the car down a hill when you've already consolidated second place pretty much. Um, it just wasn't a characteristic race for him. No, and not at all. No, it, it certainly was not. Um, which then led us to perhaps the moment, for better or worse, that everybody came came and talked about after the race, though certainly not for the right reasons. As Mara Engel was being interviewed on television and radio by Mark Beretta, um, he basically threw Shane Van Gisberger under the bus for for repeated mistakes during the race. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's not something that you would like to hear from your teammate, but he had a reason. Yeah, there were... I want to say this, because, like, endurance racing is more of a team sport than any other form of racing. You win and lose as a team. I think Angle did obviously have some frustrations that, you know, Van Gisbergen didn't perform as well as he should have in qualifying, had a pretty wretched final out of the race. Um, there were some rumors that maybe Maru Engel was a bit upset that he didn't get the car set up in his favor as opposed to Van Gisbergen's. Um, the, underst- the, the frustration is understandable, and believe us, we don't want to see drivers act like emotionless robots all the time. But, and Maru knows this now because he's since apologized for it, you cannot go on TV and throw your teammates under the bus in a fit of anger like that, dude. Yeah, that's uncalled for. I mean, like, that's your teammate. I mean, as, as much as it pains you to see your teammate put, put like, not, not only the car, but your second place trophy into the wall. Yeah, it's, um, I believe the quote was when Mark Beretta asked Morrow, well, you know, that's just racing, right? The quote, I believe, was, no, that's that's not racing. There was too many mistakes from Shane all weekend. So, yeah, that's all I got to say. Uh, it definitely felt like he was holding something back at the yeah. time. And he's since gone out and apologized for what he has said, which, you know, good for him. I don't think that should be held against him for the rest of his racing career. I don't think it will. Um, although some people did have a right to be ticked. Do you think that Mauro Engel had a, had, a re- had a legitimate gripe to be upset? Yeah, he had a legitimate gripe to be upset. He literally just watched, watched like, Shane Van Gisberg and smashed his second-place trophy into a wall. But I, I think he could have been a bit more restrained in his comments. Like, it it doesn't fit well when... Like, imagine you're, like, the the company that sponsored this car and you just literally just watch the team implode on television like that where it's not, it's not that they could keep it together. Like, yeah, they, they didn't keep their chin up after their race was completely dashed. They decided to just implode at the first, like the, the moment that the race was lost self implosion. Oh my goodness. Yeah. This was one of a number of teams that had a chance to win a race on paper. They all could have easily dominated as Marinello Motorsport did. But I think all three drivers, Baird, Van Gisbergen, and Angle, all did something over the course of the weekend that was not on. And it wasn't just exclusive to them. A lot of drivers made some mistake. There were multiple cases of GT3 drivers kind of punting off cars in the slower categories, which... You know, some people will wrongly assume that that's, you know, the fault of the slower cars for being out there. But I want to relate this in a way that's easily relatable. Would you be upset if you were driving on the interstate and somebody was tailgating you 
like right on your back bumper when you're already going 15 to 20 miles an hour over the speed limit on the highway and they're flashing their headlights and blowing their horn and waving their middle finger at you? No. No, you would hate that. No. Your first instinct would probably be to brake check then. <laughs> yeah, but in sports car racing, it, it's always it's always the right of the slower car. The faster car has to find their way around you. You don't have to yield anything if you're the slower car. Right, and it wasn't just the incident with Van Gisbergen and, and the Porsche Cup car whose name, goodness, I, I hate that they're, the name of that car escapes me because I know that they were on pace to actually win that category until they were caught up in that incident. Um, oh, I can't remember some, somebody will Somebody will fact check this for me when the episode is released. Um, it wasn't the only instance, and it wasn't the first time that in, that some of this has come up in sports car racing because there was talk after a lot of incidents in the Dubai 24 hour that they should cut out the slower touring car categories to which um, a lot of people have immediately come back and pushed back and said, Hey, this is a, this is a race for all these different categories. In the case of Dubai, it's a 24 hour race for amateur and sportsman drivers in the Bathurst 12 hour, the GT four cars and the invitational class cars are part of the attraction. The cars like the Mark cars, Ford focus and Mazda threes, but they're, V8 engines and two frame chassis or the uh, or the Dodge Viper that was wheeled out by Daytona sports cars. You know, those cars are fun to watch. Yeah, they're fun um, to watch. And- like the, the only thing that should keep a car from not competing if the if the speed difference like if the speed difference is, you know, a, con- a safety concern. Besides that, you should allow it. Right. And even even between two GT3 drivers, there were some questionable decisions. Timo Glock in qualifying. Timo Glock, who has stood on podiums in Formula One and in Champ Car and is a GP2 Series champion and a DTM race winner, almost caused a tragedy during qualifying when Alex Buncombe was coming right up on him over the over the crest of a blind corner, and Glock was kind of just idling in the middle of the track at one of at a one-line groove. Yeah. And it nearly caused a big accident. And I'm and I think a lot of people were surprised that the book was not thrown harder at Timo Glock for that. Yes, because like behavior like that is usually unacceptable, especially here, because it is probably one of the most dangerous and unforgiving racing venues in the world. Yes, if uh, if Buncombe had hit Glock and if that car had gone airborne, there is no catch fencing at that part of uh, at that part of Skyline before the descent down the mountain that could have been very very bad yes like not not only bad for the occupants of that race car was like yeah it would have been a sad sad day but i'm pretty sure some spectators probably would have been caught off guard because you like you don't expect an accident to be happening there right you just think about the bathurst 1000 a couple years ago where chas mostert had his awful crash in qualifying that broke his leg, put him out of the race, and he managed to collect a uh, managed to collect a marshal stand in the process because the catch fencing wasn't high enough. Yeah. So that was so that could have been bad. Um it was uh, it was a uh, it was not exactly the race that people had hoped for. There was a lot of early attrition, in particular for my boys at Nissan. Because I've got to have favorites sometimes. Even if you try to remain an unbiased fan <laughs> of racing, you still got to have your favorites. And when Nissan announced their driver lineups with K 
Katsumasa Chio in one car and Jan Martinburg in the other, I was thinking, well, they're going to win this race 1-2 and they're going to win it by several laps. This is what I hope for. <laughs> Instead, uh, Chio's car breaks down in the first hour and ultimately has to retire because the gearbox breaks. Now, to the credit of the number 24 team of Jan Martinborough, Todd Kelly, and race department alum, just like me, Florian Strauss, um, they had a wreck in Friday practice. They spent 24 hours just to get the car ready for qualifying. The car was reborn under the nickname Zombiezilla, and within the first couple hours of the race, Jan Martinborough had driven it to the lead ahead of guys yes. like like Lowndes and Angle. Like, they had the pace to win, and what happened was, with four hours to go, a piece of dirt got caught in the gearbox, and they couldn't get out of third. And they lost three laps. They ultimately finished two laps down because Martinborough, on his penultimate lap of the race, unlapped himself and set the fastest lap that the car ever did on the penultimate lap of a 12-hour race. This guy's for real. Yeah, the the real deal. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, by the time the next episode comes out, Nissan will announce their GT500 driver lineups. It is expected that Jan Martinborough will take one of the seats in the number 12 CalSonic Team Impole Nissan GTR and GT500, which, considering Martinborough's origins as a GT Academy winner who won it from a video game where that car was prominently featured, that's a pretty big deal. Yes, a, a very, very big deal. Like... Uh, I I think it, it it's kind of I would say the king like kind of the the apex or like the big grand finale of the GT Academy, right? And he's also stepping up to Super Formula as part of what's looking like a very very strong rookie class. Um, interestingly enough, driving a Toyota powered car because Nissan has no involvement in Super Formula. Yes, but. Keep an eye out on that Super Formula rookie class with Martinborough, with Nick Cassidy from New Zealand, with the reigning All-Japan F3 champion Kenta Yamashita, and with GP2 Series champion Pierre Gasly. And that still might not be all because Antonio Felix da Costa, the reigning Macau Grand Prix winner, is also in line for a seat. Man, oh man. <laughs> like, if you're, Just, if you're not watching Super Formula, like, if you're not watching Super Formula this season, you're probably never going to watch <laughs> Oh, goodness, no. Um, so just wrapping up things from Bathurst, it was uh, it was a fairly exciting race, um, dominated, not entirely dominated, but won very handily by the Marinello Motorsport Ferrari, a V-Lander, Lowndes, and Wincup. Uh, Shout-outs also to Wincup. You know, if anybody was thinking that somebody would implode in the final stages of a race at Bathurst, it would be Wincup again. <laughs> if, somebody was, if somebody would have wagered on one supercars driver to... Uh, throw their toys out of the pram, it probably would have been Wincup. But no, Wincup was actually a consummate professional from day one, never drove outside of his limits, and the same could be said for Craig Lowndes, who, of course, has more experience at this mountain than... than he's forgotten more things at the mountain than most people will ever learn or remember. Yeah, they, like, they came into this weekend with the, the right frame of mind for this specific race at the mountain. They didn't come in here thinking it was, you know an exhibition, or it was, you know, a 1,000 where they had to, you know, put everything on the line. They came in here knowing it was a 12-hour race, and they had to put 12 hours of professional work in to get the win. Second place was uh, was one of the pro-am teams, 
uh, Competition Motorsports and their Porsche 911 GT3R. They had a very interesting driver lineup as well. Um, Mark Lieb, reigning World Endurance Drivers Champion. Patrick Long, who had a very entertaining <laughs> moment uh, early on in the race where I believe it was him that... Um, I want He flipped somebody off. I want to say that it was uh, the Marinelle Ferrari or the Mercedes with SVG. And uh, it just made people think of that moment in the 92 British Touring Car Championship where um, John Clellan shows the middle finger to Steve oh. Soper and Murray Walker goes, I'm going for first, says Patrick Long. So it's Lieb and it's Long and it's David Calvert-Jones, another um, amateur driver who in his day job is a is a helicopter pilot for movies and television shows. Yeah, you, you can't make this stuff up, people. <laughs> But the star performer of, out of this bunch is young Australian Matt Campbell, who is the reigning Porsche Carrera Cup champion in Australia. He qualified the car well. He held his own against a lot more experienced drivers. Watch that kid. He's going to be good. Third place, Bentley Motorsport with the M Sport team just coming off their victory at the Rally Monte Carlo. Guy Smith, former Le Mans winner. Stephen Kane and Oliver Jarvis, former Audi LMP1 driver. Uh, in his very first race for Bentley, he takes third place in a podium on his debut for the uh, British squad. Things are really looking up for Bentley. This is their second podium at this race in a couple of years. Yeah, it's looking up. Their their GT program is finally getting, you know, an upward trend to where they hope it would be. Oh, yes. And it, it certainly is something to see just that big, massive Bentley and its screaming V8 <laughs> twin turbo engine just howl down the front straight away like that um ryan what did you think about these two races just on the whole did you enjoy daytona or bathurst more Ooh, i'd probably say i enjoyed daytona more but that's solely because i'm a big i'm really into the prototypes probably like if if i had to watch a race with you know a mixed class race just prototypes or just GTs, I'd probably go for mixed class GT and then just prototypes. Like if 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 there's prototypes and traffic, I'm gonna be watching it. Right. I I was more tuned into Bathurst, and I would say that for like personal reasons that Daytona was a more enjoyable race. Yeah. I think they both had um, their fair share of good and some bits of bad, but overall the good outweighed whatever black spots would have come about the race. Um they were both really enjoyable races. If you have not caught up and seen them, um, IMSA on their official YouTube channel has the entire Rolex 24 with commentary from IMSA radio slash radio Lama on their YouTube channel that you can watch free at any time. Uh, Nismo TV has the entire Bathurst 12 hour race on their YouTube channel, which is basically just the first 11 hours of the race. And then a second video with like the last 45 minutes of it. Um, so if you need to catch up, there they are. You can find them. They're easily available to watch and enjoy. There's you know, not going to be a whole lot of racing until the uh, the main racing season starts. So good chance for you to catch up and see what you've been missing. They're both really good races. I would go out of my way to, uh, to watch them. Do we have any questions uh, in the mailbag that we have... Uh, that yes. we have that we can dep into from uh from these two races. Yes, we do. We have one about IMSA uh from 
listener of the show, Henry Chapman, we have, what is one improvement IMSA have to make from the Rolex 24 at Daytona? And he quotes, "There, I know there isn't many. So, RJ, what would you do to improve the Rolex 24 at Daytona? Um, goodness. I, there was one thing that was talked about during the race, and that was, um, how slow some of the prototypes were when they were coming out of the pits on cold tires. Um, it was talked about on IMSA radio that maybe there should be like a centralized um, tire warmers, like not re- not having to rely yeah. on the teams to bring their own, but just have like a, a centralized cabinet, at least for the prototypes, so they can get up to speed in a safe manner because drivers, including Pipo Durrani, were very outspoken about how unsafe it was to come out on the track in cold tires and be passed by GTLM and GTD cars. Yeah, I think that's definitely something they should consider because, yeah, having prototypes being slower than GT cars when normally they're faster can not only create situations where, you know, GT cars are coming up on cars they, you know, don't feel comfortable around and you have prototypes coming up on other prototypes that they think are going to be faster than what they are. So, you know, corner exits could actually be more unsafe because of that. That could be something they could do. Hmm. What would I would what I would change? Probably one thing I'd probably change. It's one of the things I like about Bathurst. Bathurst starts at like early morning. That it's so early that it's dark. Oh yes, this would yeah. Bathurst was a race that my mom would enjoy because whenever I went on car trips with my mom, we always started at <laughs> four or five o'clock in the morning when I didn't want to be up. <laughs> yeah, I'd probably have the Rolex Twenty Four start. Saturday night, probably like eight or nine o'clock. So it ends in prime time on Sunday night. That would be exciting. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I'm not much for budging on traditions just to, uh, just to gain a few more TV racings, but that would be pretty cool at least to try out for for a year. Yeah. And me and like, if you ever watch Daytona at night, you know, they don't turn on like the, the oval lights, to, to kind of, you know, give, still keep it, you know, the endurance race feel of it actually being dark, have a nighttime finish under the floodlights. That'd be exciting and something different for endurance racing. Oh, my goodness. That that could be something special. I, I really think it could have. And I'm usually not a big fan of just having a Daytona 500's finish at night just because it looks better on TV. <laughs> With the roll at 24, maybe maybe something different. Yeah, maybe something, something different. different. Okay, and I know we have another one about Bathurst. Uh... Yeah, we got a lot of questions about the uh, the Morrow Engel Shane Van Gisbergen incident. Uh, yeah, uh, we have questions from Brian Shadowwolf. Is it is it right to do something like what Mark what Marco Engel did during the interview? I think we talked about that. Yeah, we covered it at length. Um, we pretty much agreed that, no, it wasn't okay. And in the days since then, Maru Engel has since apologized and admitted that, hey, that wasn't okay for me to do. Okay, we also have another question from Nathan Green on Facebook. Uh, should the three major GT series, IMSA's GT, Super GT, and Blancpain GP, um merged together to form a worldwide GT series running a specific category and expand to other parts of the world where they currently aren't. 
Um, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, I would have thought about this, but honestly, they're fine on their own. Yeah. And that would just cause so many other headaches. Like, I would say that the GT300 cars from Super GT, like the Prius and the Subaru, they've already proven that they're pretty well balanced against the FIA GT3 cars. But other than that, I mean, IMSA has been just... The Class 1 project between GT500, DTM, and what used to be IMSA but IMSA's kind of given up on that. Um, DTM's been kind of dragging their feet about, about that. Blancpain has a solid product. IMSA has a solid product. Super GT has a solid product. They're fine on their own, and while it would be nice to see, like, maybe some sort of dream race between the, the three classes, a la, like, what you would get out of a Gran Turismo All-Stars race, um, the reality is that maybe it's not feasible, and yeah. honestly, they're... They're fine on their own. Yeah, they're fine on their own. If if I had to say one thing for a dream GT series, it would probably it would probably be a, an endurance world tour, not like a proper championship, but you know, kind of. Uh, I would say kind of like in the style of how we had like college football championships before the playoff here in the U.S., where it was done on votes of who you think the best car was, and essentially have kind of branch together the major GT3 endurance races into kind of like this informal championship where you have these incredible races, like like just running them down, Daytona, Bathurst, uh, Spa, the Nürburgring. I know they're doing the, the road to the road to Le Mans as like a support race of the full 24 hours of the GT3 race. Add that in there. And you, you know, make an informal championship of all these great races at these iconic venues. And I will say this, that really, and I know that the uh, the the GT World Cup in Macau was supposed to be that, the Bathurst 12-hour race has kind of become, in it, uh, from its own, uh, from just by itself, without any extra effort, it's kind of become that endurance sports car racing all-star event yeah but- and it means a lot to the manufacturers and the drivers who participate that's why we saw maro angle being so heated when his car got wrecked that's why you saw the emotion in the marinello motorsport team when they took pole position and eventually went on to win yeah because it's at a time of year where there's not much racing so not only the drivers are free but fans are free to watch it so it, it instantly becomes one of the biggest events on the calendar and it's in a part of the world where you know sports cars are big and it's a big market for sports car makers it was it, it, it's certainly a good one i have to say that you know the bathroom 12 hours become a must watch race every year Yes, yes. I would, I would love to go to it myself, <laughs> but I don't have the money for it. Um, do we have any other questions concerning the concerning our big sports car races before we turn it back over to Dre, who is somewhere around here? Yes, yeah, so, somewhere, somewhere. somewhere. I, think, I think we're done on the sports car questions. We could pull Dre out of whatever hole he's hiding in to, to answer the rest of the mailbag questions. bag it's almost yes, like a rest it's of the like, mail bag yay yay dre's live 
It's almost like we recorded this at a different point and I magically reappeared. Welcome back, Dre. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Good to be back, everybody. So we're attacking in the rest of your mailbag questions. Sorry we didn't have one two weeks ago. We simply we were just a little bit too pressed for time on that one. But um, we're, we're making up for pressed. it. We're always pressed. We're always, yeah, we're always pressed. I mean, it's the nature of being Connor Daly fans. Um, <laughs> shout, out, shout out, Lizzie, if you're listening. Hi. Um, but yeah, we're tackling the rest of your mailbag questions. By some magic, some of them have already been answered. I don't know how. They just did. Um, but we'll tackle your questions now. Here we go. So, at Joey of the Prius on Twitter asks, How much will people complain when McLaren releases a livery that's different from all the Sean Bull designs? Uh... Next- Guys, they're going orange. They're absolutely, definitely, yeah. positively going orange. They, they, apparently, it's the same thing that you get in pro wrestling, where people like fantasy book their expectations far too high. But King, I said this before. I think people only want this orange McLaren because they're so bored of McLaren as a brand. Yeah, they're just they're just so stuffy and boring. It's like, oh, bring back the orange. Uh, you know what? I don't even like the orange all that much. I think it's ugly. I think, Black I think and silver it, was objectively better. Don't at me. Yeah, I it agree. Was, it was objectively better. Like orange would be okay. It's it won't be bad. Like it's gonna be the McLaren. Like it it it, it it's not bad, but it's not great. It, it's it's livable. How many people? Yeah, re- how many people watching Formula One remember the days when McLaren's livery was predominantly orange in like the early years of their F1 existence and in Can Am? How many people watching F1 uh, remember Can-Am? They're all I'm, dead. I'm, I'm pretty <laughs> sure McLaren only ran orange in Can-Am. Mm. Yeah. You know, what I, you know what I say? Bring back the one-off red and red and yellow Penske-esque Marlboro livery. <laughs> the one-off. That, the that, one. that'll, that'll shake some feathers up. I'm like, yay! It's like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> just, just to mess with some heads. <laughs> like that like, would be amazing. When when the Honda McLaren came back, people tried to talk themselves into the reason why the original like McLaren McLaren Honda was those colors was because of Honda, not because of Marlboro. Because they tried to talk themselves into the they'll run that livery again, guys. They'll run it, not realizing I'm pretty sure they ran it before Honda came to the team, and they ran it after Honda left the team. Don't yeah. Worry, King, when it, Sorry, King, when I have 15 Tiamat Marduk videos talking about what a potential livery could look like. Think of the views. <laughs> think of the, of the views. views. <laughs> um, yeah, any, any other further comments, RJ? Um, I think it is very hilarious that uh, Stoffel Van Dorn actually did get to drive a white and red uh, Honda-powered uh, single-seater this past year. Yes. Oh, yeah? As a McLaren-contracted driver. <laughs> yes. <laughs> But where? <laughs> but in Super Formula. Ah. For, Formula One's number one feeder series. <laughs> that's that's on, that's on a shoot, y'all. Yeah. Hashtag shots fired. Um, need I say more? Um, friend of the show, Danny Brennan, asks, and this is a good one, for, uh, will Newgarden win the 2017 IndyCar Championship or flop in his first Penske year? Like Hell Simon yes, Agenow he's going to win it. Hell yeah! <laughs> Why did I know you were going to say that? He's going to win every race this year, and it's going to be great. Everybody's going to get sick and tired of it by the halfway point, and I'm just going to I'm just going to be on cloud nine. 
It's gonna be wonderful. So, Go so, so RJ, RJ, how do you feel about Juan Pablo Montoya teasing that the Indy 500 might not be his only outing in the fifth Penske this year? Oh no, that's huh? great. Um, I mean, Montoya's already a proven winner this year. Yes, he's yes. a proven winner. If you like stock cars, who knew? <laughs> I mean, I want the opinion of someone that isn't a raging New Garden fanboy, King. <laughs> uh, I don't know. It's it's gonna be it's it's gonna be a battle of the Penskes for sure. It's gonna be a battle of the Penskes. Other teams are gonna get wins, but it's gonna be oh, a sure. battle of the Penskes. Yeah, I, I I think we need to watch Smith Peterson a bit more. I think Michaela Lotion's gonna have a breakout year next year. Just my marking that down from now. I'm calling him a shot, King. I'm calling him a shot. I got the other SPM driver, and my boy's Hinchcliffe, which kind of says a lot, really. <laughs> but for me, New Garden, I mean, I think the kid's a stud. I said this, for, I've said this for a couple of years now. The kid is spectacular. Um, he'll get time. I know Tim Sindrick is coming over to to help him as well as a strategist, which is one of the best in the business, and he's very good at making yeah. King feel stupid. <laughs> whoa, whoa! I made him look stupid. <laughs> then he then he called me out on Twitter. Like, really? <laughs> Never gets old that one. I, I think <laughs> I think we should slot in some IndyCar news right here, right Go now. Um, Dre, did you did you read that quote from your boy Mikhaila Lotion? A lotion? <sighs> I did, unfortunately, and I just find it amazing that. Michaela Lotion very nearly died in, <laughs> in in that car no less than three years ago is making comments all, along the lines of, if you don't like it, quit. And I think, like, I see where he's coming from to a degree, but I also think that's an incredibly ignorant attitude to have regarding safety and motorsports. Uh, we, you know, we have gotten to the point where, oh, you know, safety is enough now. Like, safety yeah. should never be enough. We yeah. should always be looking for ways to make the sport safer, in my opinion. For, so for, is... for our listeners who haven't heard the full quote, I'll read it out. Go These on. European tracks like Paul Ricard, you might as well play a computer game than drive there because you'll enjoy it more. I understand that it's all very dangerous and we could talk about it all we want, but excuse me. The people who are really worried about danger, I advise them to leave the sport and do something safe. Because this is racing. Racing has always been tough. That's normal. No need to make things more safe than they need to be. If a driver is driving alone and not afraid of anything, knowing that he'll be unhurt in any case, does that that does take away a certain factor of the battling of the battling and of the human the human psychology. I bet he said that with a raging boner, didn't he? It's just, it's just that, it's just the classic meathead kind of quotes regarding safety, motorsport, macho, manliness, bravery, etc. That I've heard regarding safety and motorsport ever since I was first a fan as a teenager. It's, We've heard it all before, you know, it's, you know, we've got to leave, you know, racing is dangerous, whatever happens, regardless. And yeah, of course, that is true to a degree. But the moment we get complacent with safety is the moment we can open the door for another tragedy. And for me, I believe that we should always try and find ways to make the sport safer. And I just, I just find like almost like the reckless bravado of a lotion's comment funny when he was in a very near fatal accident 
less than three years ago and his own teammate James Hinchcliffe was very very lucky to be alive right now in a very serious accident again barely 12 months ago and for me to, for a lotion to come out with those comments I'm not gonna throw shade at him because you know what there's probably a lot of people in racing that feel the same way yeah you basically uh, can't have an imagination and be a racing driver because the moment you do you start to visualize all the bad things that happen to you and that's yep. when you quit yeah it's, it's, it's like it's like watch, it's like watching an episode of Gundam Wing basically half the time I was like where one of the Gundams had an ability where he could foresee all the possible scenarios of a fight, including the ones where he lost, and it had a tendency to drive the dude crazy. It's that kind of thing, and yeah, I just, I get it. I get why Elotions thinks that way. I guess it's part of a driver's psyche to think he's never going to be the one to have an accident, and, you know, safety compromises the product, etc. I just shrug my shoulders at it now, yeah. because I just, because I know I know that most people in motorsport just feel the same way, and that's never going to change, you know, and... for better or worse. We we do have something. We do have another piece of news about a change that is going to happen to, to a track on the IndyCar calendar. To a recent addition to the IndyCar calendar. I think it's happening not for this upcoming season, but the next season, where Phoenix is getting a massive revamp. Where I think they're tearing down grandstands mainly because they're moving where the start finish line is. It's not going to be on the front straight where it used to be. It's going to be between the current turn two and the dog leg of where the, that's where the new start finish line is going to be. Mm, interesting. That's going to be an interesting little run around there. Um, we'll see how that turns out. Obviously, probably we'll see more pictures of that um, in the coming months, I guess. Um, Ooh, this is an interesting one. A couple of months away from Shawnee F1. Saying, what rules from other motorsports would you implement in Formula 1? Mine would be allowing teams to run part-time. Brackets NASCAR. That's uh, uh, that's one of mine, honestly. Yeah. Like, we mm-hmm. can get more teams like ART and, like, Dams in there. Because there, there are a lot of teams that are interested in getting into Formula 1. It's just that, number one... They don't want to build their own car. Number two, they don't want to run full time because we could probably have Penske. Yeah, we could probably have Penske and Dreddy. Oh, yeah. yeah. As, as Simon Dolan of Joda Sport, um, endurance racing driver, businessman, once pointed out, you could run about fifty seasons of GP two for the budget of one year of Formula One. Yeah. Yeah, like, if, if you get allowed the opportunity, because Michael Andretti said he would be in Formula 1 if he could buy his own car, probably you could see Penske, Andretti, and Ganassi run all the races in the Americas and just the Americas with customer cars. That would be incredible. That would be lit. <laughs> I'd love that. That would be incredible. Um, I'm trying to think of any others out there that I would particularly pinch. Um, I'd like to see them pinch like MotoGP scoring system I'd like to see them run points down to 15th because I think the cutoff being at 10 is I think is a little bit too high for some of the smaller teams yeah especially uh, especially with the amount of cars that finish nowadays so many cars finish now yeah so, it yeah. was overdue for them to bump the top the, the point scoring up to 10 yeah remember it wasn't that long ago where only the top 6 scored <laughs> yeah. points that was in my lifetime yeah, mine too. Yes. Um, All of our lifetimes. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, I'd like to see them maybe bore a MotoGP score system where the top 15 score points. I think that would make a lot more sense. 
Um, maybe copy, maybe keep the F1 style top end where it's 28-18-15 as opposed to 25-20-16 because you get more value for a race win. Um, but I think going down to 15 would make a lot more sense given that the reliability of the sport is much better compared to what it was 10 years ago. Um, maybe Especially 15-20 years ago with the V10s where they were blowing up at left, right and centre every minute. Um so yeah, I, I feel that I think I'd like to see a scoring system redone, uh, something in the favour of again something like MotoGP's where it's points down to fifteenth place. That and on the it... and on the subject of like uh, a Grand Slam or something for Formula One, I would love to see an extra prize pool or a, a, a separate championship like the Tequila Patron North American Endurance Cup and IMSA for all the big races like Monaco, Silverstone, yeah. Spa, and Monza. Sure, sure, that could work. Um, which segues me along nicely to a question. We questions we got on on last week's show um, that we didn't get time to address in this week, and it's something that guys like Brian Glennon has pointed out, um, as as well as others. I'm trying to find names on the page here right now. I want to give you guys a credit. Um, yeah, yeah, it was mostly Brian Glennon as well. Um, yeah, mostly him. So, I'll, 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 so shout out to Brian if you're listening. Um, mentioning NASCAR and mentioning their new, they've redone the scoring system for this year's calendar. And, uh, oh boy, is this a doozy? Um, King, I think you're best off explaining this because I'm going to make a dog's dinner of this. Okay. Okay. I'm going to have to like pull it up because I don't remember it from memory. Oh goodness. That's, that's always the hallmark of an effective (laughs) scoring system that will be easy to comprehend by the, uh, the very blue collar salt of the earth NASCAR fan base. Well, the ones that are still left that haven't been alienated by the sports changes in recent years, such as the initial introduction of the chase for the cup and the playoff version introduced a couple of years ago. It's it's going to be interesting times. Okay. Okay. Here's what's going down. NASCAR has decided to divide every race on a calendar into three segments, usually coming at the, the, the first intermission between at the end of the first quarter mark of the race, then a halftime, and then the third segment is from the halfway point all the way to the end. Mm-hmm. At the I'm... end of each point, uh, drivers from first to tenth get points. So at the intermediate points, drivers from one to ten get points. And at the end of the race, drivers from first all the way down to 40th, as traditional in NASCAR, first to last, everyone gets points at the end. Right. And if you're thinking, well, does this sound familiar? Uh, they do this at the Spa 24 Hours of the Block Pond GT Series, where they do award points at the 6-hour and the 12-hour mark of the race for the championship on top of the overall points. Yes. Yeah, ba- basically, the in, in layman's terms, I like to disclose the thing is there's also, there's also bonus playoff points that are given out. For whoa, whoa, whoa! Let, let's let's hold up before we get into that. We don't want to overcomplicate things too quickly. <laughs> go on, King. Go, go on, King. You're in charge. You, you, you got this. You go. <laughs> okay. So the traditional Daytona dual races, the qualifying races, again into the Daytona 500. You actually get points for that this year, which is a new thing. <laughs> right? Yeah. And. What? And they have playoff points now. So, okay, they decided to rebrand the chase as the playoffs. And the same rules as, you know, the, the other, you know, the, the previous chase. 
where they divide that into rounds, but now they have playoff points, where they have a separate point system for the playoffs, which you can score points in before the playoffs start. Are you guys keeping up with this at home? <laughs> yeah. You used to get bonus points before the start of the chase for the Cup, so that's not entirely surprising, but yeah. now it's gotten a bit more convoluted. Yeah, you, you win one of the segments, you get a playoff point. You win the you win the race overall, you get five playoff points. Add them up at the end, that's gonna be your total heading into the into the playoffs. And also if you have the most regular points at the end of the regular season, you get a fifteen point playoff bonus. Okay. <sighs> You're still alive, listeners? <laughs> yeah, regu- regular season champion gets 15 playoff points. Second place in the in the regular season, 10. And then everyone else down to 10th, 1 through, like, descending order, 1, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Yeah. Also important to note, NASCAR does not give out anything like a president's trophy or a supporter shield for the regular season champion. Yeah, you just get that little 15-point bonus. Half fun in the chase. I mean, the playoffs. <laughs> it's it's very much American sports like, and that's always been the envis- the vision of NASCAR ever since they implemented a postseason to determine their championship. To which I say, yeah, but motorsports isn't football or basketball or baseball. It's something entirely different. It's a whole different yeah. animal. It's it's yeah. tough to try and it's tough to do. I understand you want to try and bottle up those great championship chases of 1992 and even 2001 which was held under the chase rules but managed to be a pretty awesome championship battle in its own right you want to have that every year but sometimes it's just sometimes you you don't sometimes you don't it just oversaturates it yeah like if if i had to change the chase format like nascar needs to have a playoff of some form like 36 races is far too long for a season to just have a straight title fight i would instead of having a 10 race chase i'd probably extend it to like 12 races and instead of the stupid rounds go back to the original format where it was like a mini season where it was a 12 race mini season probably have the cutoff race for the chase would be the Southern 500 because it it give one more, even one more reason for people to look forward to the Southern 500, and bring back the Grand Slam. Like make make the Grand Slam races the only races that are you win and you're in. That's it. Besides that, all the other just straight points, just straight points. Okay, um, for those guys that are totally aren't bamboozled, basically consider it a combination of the points race from cycling. And then, yeah, if, of course, we, this country pretends to give a shit about track cycling. Um, and then combine that with the showdown format that British Superbikes made famous a few years ago because they also wanted a championship to have a more thrilling finale until Josh Brooks kind of broke that system last year by winning six of the seven showdown rounds. Um, but again, I mentioned it before in BSB, it's a very similar system to that where after every race you get points, but you also get the top three, also get what they called podium credits. You'd get five podium credits for a win, um, three for second, and then one for first. And at the end of, I think it's the triple header at Alton Park, um, for the last seven rounds, the top six in the championship have their points total reset to 500, so they're unassailable. And then they get all their combined podium credits added onto that score of 500, 
to form a new championship, and then it's straight up, same system as before, seven rounds, basically the top six compete, compete with each other for the championship, whereas basically everybody else fights for seventh place, and you get a little trophy dinner, it's called the BSP Riders Cup, and if you're a Black Life fan out there, I called it the chase for the paperweight, um, because nobody really wants a seventh place trophy, um, but there you go, um, it's, it's a very similar system to that, basically, only with the combination of mid, mid-race point scoring that you get in the, the cycling race, and, in, in, in points race in cycling, and things like that, basically, but... Um, the fact it's taken us five minutes to explain it probably isn't a good sign. But apparently, King, the drivers love it. <laughs> yeah, because they helped come up with the idea. <laughs> oh. Can anyone say conflict of interest? No? Well, yeah. it's, it's, it's not really... Con- like, you, you want to have a system that the drivers, you know, enjoy racing under. Yeah, but in theory... In theory... Right, in theory, though, this should... This is supposed to, like, I guess, somehow bring back evoke memories of like heat races in short track racing around the United States where you have different races and then like a main race yeah. at the very end. I yeah, get I where think, they're coming from with that. I think, and I, the, I think one of the reasons why we're seeing this is because half the season is now under, well, starting last year, it was under NBC and NBC were known for their, NBC has become known for their, Premier League coverage because they probably have the best soccer coverage of anyone in the United States because some somehow they're able to squeeze all the commercial breaks into the halftime and I think the Premier when, League because this is as they yeah. call it over there they pronounce it the Premier the, League I love that <laughs> yeah so so NASCAR is splitting itself up into segments with like the intermissions are about fifteen minutes long so they could in mm-hmm. theory put most of the commercials into the intermissions so the races can be somewhat commercial free for the most part yeah unlike other american racing series but at least we get side by side even some of them which i guess kind of helps yeah but um yeah i mean overall i don't think it's a terrible system i want to see it live to see just how good or bad it may end up being in reality I'm not keen on it. I think I think it's overcomplicated, and I think it's going to confuse some people. And... Yeah, like I think in terms of one single contained race, it's easy to understand. But when sure. you bl- when you blow it up to the context of an entire like 36 race season with a 10 oh race boy. with a 10 race playoff with multiple rounds within that 10 race playoff, it becomes so overly complicated. Yeah, yeah. I, I can kind of understand why Johnson is kind of tuning out on this, and I feel bad because this generation of NASCAR drivers that is coming up and making waves, actually probably one of the best we've had in a while, and they probably won't get the credit they deserve because people are turning out left and white because it's getting so goddamn overcomplicated. Yeah. Yep. Can't argue with that at all. Um, thanks for the question, Brian. Um, let's have a look up the list here. Another one from Shawnee F1 asks, if Bottas was booted out at the end of 2017, or should we say hashtag Bottas, was booted out at the end of 2017, who do you think Mercedes, brackets, not you, <laughs> close brackets, <laughs> will replace him with? Brackets early, I know. Close brackets. Um... <laughs> Who do um, I think Mercs would replace him with? Yeah, it's, it's either going to be O'Connor or Verline. Depends who does better. Like, 
That's not the fun answer, is it? Yeah, that that that's that's the answer he wanted. Who would Mercedes replace him with? Esteban. Next question. Um, so, <laughs> I I want to be more detailed than that, but I'm with King. I really think it would be Esteban Ocon. I think that's the guy that Merck's opinion their future hopes on. And I can tell that RJ Ocon is at half mast mm. as we speak. Just to <laughs> give <you> an idea. Um, <laughs> go on, RJ. Tell us more. You, you know you want to agree with this. Go on. I, I completely agree with this entirely. I think it's going to be fun seeing that uni- that European F3 rivalry play itself out again. Now for Yay. now for all the marbles between him and Verstappen. Okay, I'm I'm breaking off on a tangent here. Who would you want to see in that seat? Because we saw Nico Rosberg a couple of days ago come out and say that uh, if he <laughs> had the choice, he'd put Fernando Alonso in there because it would cause fireworks. Nico Even more Ro- reasons to love Nico Rosberg, by the way. Nico uh, Rosberg is my fave. <laughs> yep, yep. He's the man. He's going to be sorely missed. Like, oh, I love that bastard. <laughs> I love how you said, yeah, I'm retiring from racing and everyone's so... so Nico, you're going to Formula E, right? No, I'm retired. <laughs> No, so I'm there's a chance from racing. So there's a chance we'll see you in the bathrooms twelve hours. God damn it! <laughs> um, you know what the problem is? Felipe Massa has dulled the entire view of retirement in general now. So it's hey, if, if, if Rosberg's retiring, hey, he's coming back next year, isn't he? <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. Felipe, Felipe Massa has devalued the retirement move. It, it, it's a sabbatical, King. It's a sabbatical. Okay. On three, a name, like the person you would most want to see in that car at the entire F1 field. One, two, three. Fernando Alonso. Ooh. So, King wants him to stay. Yeah. RJ wants Alonso in the car because, of course, he wants Alonso in the car. <laughs> I'm here for the entertainment. I want Daniel Ricciardo in that car. <laughs> now, that would be fun. <laughs> Like, you know if, I, if, like, if I had my, like, absolute dream pick anyone in the world, it'd probably be, um, god damn it. <laughs> I was gonna say, the name! <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was gonna say, I was literally gonna say Marcus Erickson, but I mean the other Swedish guy. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic! Oh my god, he was setting up for that! He was setting up for that, and it was like, oh, I forgot the name! Oh my god, my mind just went blank. If you said Mox Erickson, I would have died right here and now. Oh my god. That that that's incredible. Oh, um, my. oh Jesus. Um Time for Andre uh, Lauderer to get one more shot at it. Yes. Yeah, yeah we, down. we we all know I meant Felix Rosenquest. Of course you did. Yes. <laughs> we all believe you now, King, after that after that cop. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> We totally believe you. Uh, one more from uh, Joey of the Price, who asks, will Giovinazzi ever actually drive for Ferrari? No. No. Did, did Jev ever drive for Ferrari? Did Esteban Gutierrez ever drive for Ferrari? No. Did Mark Genet ever drive for Ferrari? No. No. The third driver role really is just a testing role, and, you know, unless an ex- extreme circumstance happened like we got with Luca Padoa, don't remind me of this, <laughs> goddammit! So, so, sorry, RJ. Sorry, I had to do it. Um, 
yeah, like that guy who had to fill in for a little bit in that season as alongside uh, Giancarlo Vizicella as well. Um, unless that happens, I don't think we'll expect to see Giovinazzi in the car. But he looks damn good in a Ferrari blazer, I must say. Um, goddamn it's a good right. Look. It's just again, a like I said, how many goals will he be able to pull up the bar saying, "Hey, hey, babe, I drive a Ferrari." I mean. Come on now. Like, like yeah. I don't think you could give him any better first chat-up line in the world. Like, Unless you say, like, one, I'm a fighter pilot, or two, I work for Drew Carey. <laughs> or something like that. Um, but that's the best we've got, really. Okay, uh, also- okay. No, I got, I got one news story. Actually, I got two. I'm going to give you the first one, and I'm going to give you a hint, and you got to guess the second one. Oh, Go shit. On. Okay. Go on. Yeah. Autosports, like... I mean, Motorsport.com's front page is looking like 2008 right now, where BMW has denied plans that they're returning to Formula 1, saying that they're focusing on their GT return to Le Mans in 2018 and their technical Mm -hmm. partnership with Andretti in Formula E. But someone has said that they're ready to drive a Formula 1 car again. Ooh, someone who wants to drive a Formula 1 car again. And you mentioned 2008. Yeah, and and it's related to... To BMW not wanting to come back. Is Robert it, Kubica. Is it Robert yes. Kubica? <laughs> yes. Robert Kubica of the, of the Baikal's racing team? Hell yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, no, I'm, I'm down. We, we, oh, we all love Robert here. Robert, you know, amazing talent. Again, you know, getting a full-time ride in the WEC next year is going to be fantastic. I'm delighted for him that he's gotten that gig, by the way. Um I mean, it certainly can't go worse than his rallying career. Oh, God. The (laughs) the rallying career is so bad it ended his Formula 1 career. But that, that, that's a sign that, it, that the career has not gone to plan. No. Um, that's... Yeah, but he, he said that he's, you know, he wants to test. He doesn't want to race. I guess that's one thing. I guess that's a plus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. give him a test. Yeah, he said he said testing is one thing. Racing, like a race weekend, is a completely different thing. He said he could probably drive like a Formula One car at eighty percent of his capability, like back in the day when he won the Canadian Grand Prix. About when he dive bombed the shit out of people at Singapore in twenty ten. <laughs> That was that was lit, um, but yeah, get well soon, Rob, as always, and uh, yeah, good luck in the WEC, my friend. Um, Oh, one more from Brian Glenn as well. This one probably one for you, King. What did you think of Carl Edwards' retirement? Oh, God. That was out of the blue. That was... Yeah, Yeah, Mm. so Charles Edwards probably going down as one of the greatest drivers in modern NASCAR history to never win the championship, announced his retirement in his prime to go focus on other things and what we believe is perhaps a move into politics. Yeah, he, he might be... I know, I forgot, I think he said he's going to run for, sen- he's trying to run for senator in his home state of Missouri. Ah, okay, yeah. that's interesting. And out of this, we have the promotion of Daniel Suarez, NASCAR's B-Series champion, the first Mexican driver to win a major NASCAR title, up to Carl Edwards' vacated number 19 seat. Yeah, there was, like, Which, no questions about it. There was, like, no long Mercedes wait into the void, like... Same day, Edwards announced the retirement. Well, Suarez, you're up. Yeah. Good luck, Rook. Yes, <laughs> Daniel Suarez is going to be one of those great drivers, I feel, for the next 10 or 15 years. And a really important guy because he is breaking down a lot of the barriers that shouldn't exist in NASCAR and pissing off um, 
pissing off parts of the NASCAR fan base I want no part of. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As like surprisingly, like a lot of people have been calling out Brian France and like, how could you allow this to happen? Like Brian France said, like this was the point of the Dry to Diversity program. Like he said, if that program didn't exist, Daniel Suarez probably wouldn't be here right now. Yeah, even Brian France, who who away from NASCAR endorsed the fucking Cheeto in chief, is is cool with Daniel Suarez and the Drive for Diversity. Yeah, like the Drive for Diversity program was his idea because he because he feels like if NASCAR has a more diverse driver like driver lineup, they're gonna have a more diverse fan base. You're goddamn right, they are, and it's gonna be yeah. a whole lot better for it. And I'm glad to see that Daniel Suarez has this great ride for this season. I hope he does well. Yeah, mm-hmm. like, if, if it wasn't for that program, he we'd probably be like, just swap out Esteban Gutierrez for Daniel Suarez in Formula 1, because that's what it would probably be like. Yep. Oh, that would be lit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm, I'm down. I'm down. I'm the NASCAR guy, and I'm down for that. Uh, last question of the day comes from Len, uh, at LenM4 on Twitter. Hi, Len. He says, does F1 need to look at the junior class teams to ensure more constructor entries? Perhaps a scheme similar to MotoGP's CRT rules. Yes, we talked about this earlier in the show. We need this to happen. Yes, I completely agree. For those guys that don't know, MotoGP was on the brink of extinction only about six or seven years ago. We were down to about, I think it was something like 17 full-time bikes in the series after Kawasaki and Suzuki departed. Um, they couldn't afford to run in the series anymore with the new expensive prototypes. But what happened was MotoGP basically came up with the CRT rules, which basically stands for Claiming Rules Teams, where basically smaller manufacturers were able to basically build bikes from hybrid parts of older bikes. So they were able to maybe pinch a little bit of this team's exhaust system, maybe use this bike's engine, you know, etc. It was like a Frankenstein's monster kind of operation to make teams not only cheaper, but also eventually try to make them more competitive. They were allowed to run bigger fuel tanks so they could be more aggressive on their engine mappings and little things like that to try and make the fuel more balanced. It didn't really work from a competitive standpoint unless your name is Alicia Spagaro, who, you know, was arguably the greatest rider of that era in those in that limited time frame before we went to Suzuki and ended up being a bit of a bust. But it also was significantly cheaper than building a new prototype from scratch or buying a satellite package from a factory and essentially saved the sport because the participation was at an all-time low um, right before those rules came into effect. And we started getting more bikes on the grid again. And now I think that was the catalyst for Dorna to wake up and realise... Yeah, we need to do more to support the teams, especially on the especially on the lower level, which is what we're getting now this year with Dorna subsidising the bill for these satellite bikes, which we're getting now. Um, but I would love Formula One to have something like this in the future because who wouldn't want to see teams like Prima in in Formula One? Given oh their God! <laughs> incredible, <laughs> given their incredible track record in the junior scenes of the last couple of years, or. Or a you team know. like ART, or a team like Tom's from Super Formula, or even a Penske or Andretti Autosport, dude. Yeah, like I've yeah. been firmly of the belief that customer cars should be brought back in some capacity. Maybe not like it was in the old days, but at least being able to buy stock parts of a car for a cheaper rate, so you can encourage more participation. Because that's what we kind of got in 2010 with Virgin, you know, Lotus as it was back then, and you know HRT. 
and prom promises of a cheaper sport that never materialized and I would love to see something similar in Formula 1 because like I said that was a game changer for MotoGP it saved the sport as we know it and Formula One, well, where would a new manufacturer or where would yeah. a new constructor come from? Right yeah, now? I think like impossible. F F One <laughs> has a long history of teams. Like F One is not a multi multi class sport, but there's always been classes at heart. There's always been mm -hmm. those who build, those who construct, and those who purchase. Like the manufacturers who build their entire car from scratch, constructors who, for the most part, build their chassis and buy their engine. Sometimes you see it the other way around. And those who buy their cars. And at the end of the 1970s, Bernie said the professionalized sport were banning customer cars. And when the sport was in its boom period, the 80s and the 90s, it was kind of fine because you could always get manufacturers to fill up the like manufacturers and constructors to fill up the grid. Now we're in a different sure. now we're in a different state of things where we can't fill up the grid. So why not allow people to buy customer cars? Yeah, I, I'm totally for that for what it's worth. And yeah, I just feel that you know Formula One is not. We, we mentioned it time and again. It's not sustainable on that on the basic level it is now. We're not going to get new teams coming in to fill the to fill in for the ones that are in financial instability, like the Saubers, like the Manners of the world, and that's a problem. And you know, making the sport more accessible on a grassroots level, not, not, not grassroots, but on a ground level, just to get in, I think would would do the sport wonders. I absolutely do. But. Uh, yeah, we've talked about that on many occasions already. Maybe one day we'll we'll see we'll see Chase Carey. Maybe if he sees the issue there, maybe he'll do something to address it. But uh, right now, it's not exactly what you would call promising. And on that note, <laughs> sadly we got to end. And yep. um, yeah, I'll phase out of this bit at the end. It was like apparently I popped back in there for the mailbag. It's amazing, you know, the power of editing. But um, one more time as well. It's, um, to me, obviously at Harrison101HD on Twitter, at Ryan King, right, Ryan Eric King, I should say, for Ryan on Twitter. Uh, RJ O'Connell, obviously, you can check him out on Twitter at RJ O'Connell, and you can check out supergtworld.wordpress.com. Yeah, supergtworld.wordpress.com. Yeah. Because I'm still but, too broke to buy the damn domain yeah, name. Buy the damn domain name, you lazy shit. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like $12. <laughs> Come on, man. I'll pay for it if it comes down to it. Jeez. I want to see you succeed, RJ. <laughs> um, buy the damn domain name already. But yeah, youtube.com forward slash motorsport101, facebook.com forward slash motorsport101. We're on Twitter at motorsport underscore 101. And of course, you can check everything out on the website, www.motorsport101.net. And of course, if you want to back us on Patreon, you can do that at patreon.com forward slash motorsport101. We'll be back in a couple of weeks' time. Hopefully, probably my first movie club episode. Probably by then. Actually, Oop, correction. Just but, looked it uh, up. My headphones it... fell out there. Uh, that's the that's the worst technical <laughs> error we've had tonight, and that is a good thing. Um, <laughs> but let's wrap this up. I've been Andre Harrison. He's been Ryan King and RJ O'Connell. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll catch you guys next time. Sayonara. Bye. Later, y'all.